Here we go, everybody. Welcome to another episode of BTR Break the Rules, BreakTheRules.tv. I'm your host, Love Poliakov at LovePo on Twitter. We got the Sultan of Swing himself, Giovanni Penichetti, joining us. Ahamadullah, God is victorious. With the prayer of law, in hand. the will of Allah was exerted against the great Satan. Inshallah, God wills it. So, oh, sorry. Cyber Ninja Zero is gonna be on your ass for getting that. No, I said Ahmadullah. I, I said. Okay. The... All right. Fine. There you go. You're off the hook. You're off the hook. One, this one time. means God is victorious. The other means God. I think uh, Allah wills it. I, I forget. Yes. Cyber Ninja. I'm very Zero new to Islam because according to Logo, I'm not a real Catholic. I'm very new yeah, to Islam. Yeah. So you're. Uh, so you're, forgive you're, me. You're a new. You're a new convert to Islam. <laughs> Well, what were your father think? First, it's uh, first it's Israel. Now it's uh, Islam. What's it's almost going like on? they're related, love. It's that's what he would say. It's almost like they're related. Yeah. What's going What's going on with my poor boy? Anyway, Huntsman, welcome uh, at Man uh, Dash Integrated. It's not a dash. What the hell is that thing? The lower. It's called an underscore. Underscore, at man underscore integrated on twitter huntsman thank you so much for joining us you are an expert on logistics shipping it is a great pleasure to have you here with us the prudentialist at to be prudential welcome brother it is a great pleasure to have you back here with us and today we are talking about afghanistan this is the afghanistan stream unfortunately chris balding cannot be here today but he's definitely going to be back with us for a china themed stream coming up in the near future so anyway without further ado let's start with first saying everybody subscribe patreon.com slash break the rules of course of course of course and now let's go to huntsman and just get a uh, field of view of what exactly is going on right now with afghanistan the americans have left how many people are still there let's just start first on what does america still have to do or is going to do in afghanistan well we're seeing an interesting uh goalpost moving happening almost in real time uh you know, by our own admission just a few days ago, um, by us, I mean the U.S. government. I certainly don't mean me because I probably would be lying to everybody with quite the uh, uh, quite the fervor and alacrity that the uh, the administration is. But, um, you know, at that point, we, we supposedly still had, you know, thousands of Americans in Afghanistan that, that needed to get home when you include expats, when you include family members, um, and then thousands more of cooperating, you know, Afghan civilians and their families who... Uh, had worked with us over the years, and and then of course the the now infamous uh, list that was turned over apparently by the administration to the Taliban, saying these were the people that worked with us. Uh, it probably doesn't take much of a stretch of imagination to imagine the collaborator list becoming a target list or a kill list. So we still have the situation where we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people that, in some way or another, whether by their nationality or by cooperation. Uh, with Western interests are are still targets. Um, taking Taliban assurances of peace and, and safe conduct and things like that is uh, probably not the wisest move in the world. Um, so we, we're in a situation, but we've put ourselves into a situation and by choice for, for reasons both uh, known and unknown that we can guess at, where we've got all of these, you know, people who are presumably good people, though, and in, in, in some way involved in a very difficult situation uh, of their own choosing. And the U.S. government has to balance that with, for whatever reason, August 31st was apparently an extremely hard deadline to, to even to the point of leaving people behind that needed to get out or wanted to get out. 
situation as it stands today is uh, NATO and the U.S. have have withdrawn uh, all or as many forces as possible uh, from Afghanistan. The Taliban, uh, short of one province, which is the Panjshir province, has free reign of the entire country. And uh, now it's to more regional and global power interests uh, to determine what happens next. And, and part of that includes what comes next for the Americans, what comes next for the Afghan civilians that, that cooperated with us. Mm. And to the extent they're at risk, how do we get them out? How many and are left so far from the people that uh, the Americans already uh, took uh, took away from there? Claim is that uh, last number I saw was that there was over a thousand Americans or uh, people still there that, you know, had said, had put their hand up and say, we need to get out of here. Uh, but the weird thing that happened over the last 24 hours is that goalposts moved from these are people that have said they need to get out, want to get out to now we're in the uh, very low hundreds or only 100 people who have not made the choice to stay. And that's very interesting. I just don't see that being the, that, that's an interesting framing, I guess, almost an Orwellian way of saying these people in one way or another made the choice to stay behind whether they did or they didn't, but maybe they just pop, you know, they, they could not get to an evacuation site uh, and join that. So I mean, it's hard to, to nail down an official number simply because nobody seems to know. And that includes secretary of state, secretary of defense, president himself. Uh, and everybody right now has a vested interest in lying about what that number really is. I agree. And uh, when it comes to comparison, though, because you know me, for all the people who are used to listening to me on the stream, I always like to compare one thing with another thing and see where exactly this stands. From what I understand, when the Soviets were in Afghanistan and they evacuated, they evacuated all of their people, but they left everybody who collaborated with them behind in Afghanistan. Like, they didn't even think of bringing anybody in. We're here. It's not perfect. I would say that the blame is definitely on the uh, higher officials and the administration and all that. But as far as the actual people on the ground, what they were still attempting to do, I do see there being a difference there. And at least from what I understand, mm -hmm. the Americans were almost kind of like a captain goes down with the ship thing, where first they were... They were addressing the uh, need to evacuate the Afghanis who helped them instead of the Americans. Is, is that correct or no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a situation where we had not only American military forces um, that were that were staying behind and they knew what they signed up for. Right. And and I'm not being callous about that. I have I have friends that are that were in country uh, as part of the quick reaction capability that was, you know, within the Marines as well as within the 82nd. And so we were in a situation where we've got American military forces who in a sense volunteered to be there. Um, but we had an extraordinary number of people that know if they get left behind, whether they're Americans and their families or whether they're Afghan you know, collaborators and their families, they know that the second they are not under the protection of American M4s, that things are going to go very, very differently for them. And, and even then, even with obviously our Marines and our soldiers in country, there was no guarantee of safety, as we saw, um, you know, with the, with the suicide bombs and, and just the really horrific event there. You know, we'd gone months and months and months and not had a single casualty of Americans. And then we had 12 or I think even 13 or 14, uh, ultimately, uh, in a single event. And was, that goes that, to that show was that the, uh, that was the airport uh, terrorist. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, with the airport uh, situation, it's interesting. I was watching this um, series 
with a former Russian spy who was talking about this terrorist act. He was talking about this uh, being associated with what they're referring to as uh, ISIS-K, K as in like this particular region that they're stationed in. But at the same time, he says that he's done this research. He has not found how the hell they were able to determine that it was actually this particular organization that was doing it. He personally thinks that they don't know who did it. And he's leaning on somebody else doing it. That has nothing to do with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any of those people. He is leaning on the Russian government actually being the ones to prep that <laughs> drone and uh, set, you know, and uh, set that whole thing off. But I don't know. What do you think? My number one rule is, is uh, rule 1A, don't trust initial reports uh, ever. And rule 1B, whatever the official report ends up being, probably don't trust that either. And... The, the reason for that, particularly in this situation here, is you have a massive, massive pool of potential threat vectors. And then those potential threat vectors, which it could be suicide bombs, it could be, uh, you know, some form of small arms attack from within the crowds, things like that. So you've got this very large capability, different ways you know, damage or harm could be committed against people. And then you have an equally large or larger pool of potential bad actors who, for whatever reason, want to commit these atrocities and commit these crimes and, and commit these terrible acts against people. And so in a situation like this, I, I have usually found to say, not who does this benefit now? Who does this benefit in the immediate term? But who does this benefit in a six month or 12 month or 24 month fashion? If we, if we sort of start to walk the string out in a logical way and that narrows the field some, but, but within Afghanistan with a country that's rightly known as the graveyard of empires, that's, you know, many, many, many different, you know, not only tribes, but languages and, and people who consider themselves first and foremost, part of this group, as opposed to that group, however, we categorize them as irrelevant, they will act upon their own interests with however a particular group chooses to categorize themselves. So you've got 50, 60, 70 different, maybe they did this, maybe why, and then you have to run that out. Um, my sense is, is that for nobody in the West to be aware of ISIS-K and to connect it back to what is probably a, a very legendary organization in the sense of becoming this justification for continuing the involvement in Syria, and now we're going to connect it to Afghanistan. Um, that feels very protectual, like, the, oh, Americans understand they can connect to ISIS. We'll just give it an extra letter to make it part of the same when it could be it could be any number, you know, and suicide bombing is not uh, is not unknown outside of, of uh, you know, certainly IEDs are not no, unknown outside of you know, what you may call different radical terrorist elements within, you know, the Islamist community. Um, you know, I don't think we have a real term for what we're seeing emerge, which is the massive amount uh, of interested actors of, of chaos and a vested interest in what being a part of reshaping, you know, Afghanistan is going to look like geopolitically in the next 24 or 36 months. Um, we will probably never know who really did it. All we will have is everybody lying about everybody else, in my view. 
Well, I want to open this up to the panel. And uh, before I do so, I have one final question, which is uh, StixXandHammer666, who is going to be back with us on uh, this coming Tuesday with Paul Rossi, uh, 7 a.m. But he, his uh, point of view when it comes to what could have been is that uh, he says that the people of Afghanistan, you know, even uh, the uh, Taliban, they are very, let's say, uh, oath-based. And if there was a promise uh, that Trump made to leave at this particular date, which was, I believe, uh, the end of May, right? It was May, mm -hmm. May 31st? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... When they initially set down the peace agreement in 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it was It was the end of May. So according to Styx... If that would have been honored, then what we see happening right now would not have necessarily uh, happened. I'm curious what you think. Do you think that that makes any difference at all? Or do you think that they would have rescinded on their promises because it's like, you know, fuck you, I don't care. You know, like, what exactly, how do you see that uh, could have played out if that particular time frame was honored? If we look at it from what actually has happened in, in basically mainly in the month of August, you had the, the Taliban marching, not even marching. I mean, it was, it was a full on sort of blitzkrieg movement. When you look at the amount of territory that was seized and the manner and the direction in which they seized it over just a couple of months, really on the March to Kabul, what you saw was just basically everybody kind of just throwing their hands up and going, well, this is an inevitability, right? The Taliban is, is going to be the, is going to be the ascendant ruling party. The deal was made. And what's astonishing, I think, to me about this whole thing is the degree or the manner to which, whether it was May 31st, whether it was September 11th, and then the goalpost moved again to August 31st, we had time to do it right. And at the same time, as much damage as they caused, uh, and, and as much of the horrific things as we have subsequently seen them doing, um, you know, particularly, or at least reportedly, you know, lining up, you know, Afghan collaborators to the, to NATO and to the U S uh, and, and killing their whole families in front of their own homes. We hear these reports. Um, we obviously have seen the footage of some of these attacks and, and things like that. It could have been so much worse. And it makes you wonder what the deal really was that, that was struck. We were in a very non-defensible position. Um, they had numerical superiority. They had, for the first time, not equivalent, you know, small arms capability to us, but they were better armed as a as a fighting force than they had been because of the seizure of all of the billions of dollars and, and, and caches of American weapons that we provided the ANA over the years. Um, and that was things like, I mean, there was heavy ordnance in there. You had mortars in there. You had RPGs in that. You had various small arms. You had technicals. You had all sorts of ways in which they could have caused a lot of harm and chaos. And the worst case did not materialize for us on the way out, uh, except for some of these incidents that, that are very vague or hazy as to who perpetrated them. So it, it, it is curious to me what the deal really was that, that Trump struck uh, and with whom. Hmm. Um, you had various actors involved at different points in the peace process, primarily Qatar and Turkey. So you've got you've got these vested interests that are uh, NATO or NATO adjacent, despite my own feelings about the reliability and loyalty uh, of a Turkey or a Qatar to, you know, anything we're trying to do in the Middle East and in Central Asia. But at the same time, uh, knowing it could have been so much worse, but now seeing these various factions all emerge kind of simultaneously 
it does make me wonder the degree to which anybody else who is party to these peace talks actually intends to honor them, actually intends to try to bring some form of stability, if certainly not peace, uh, to, to the country. And, mm. and then you have the you have the completely separate element from all of this of um, Masood, I believe his name is, you know, his father was one of the key Northern Alliance guys. He's now uh, leading the NRF out of Panjshir, claims to have thousands of fighters, claims to have different arms and material. What, and a what lot is of the a NRF? Oh, gosh, I'm not so smart on it that I remember what the acronym is, but it's it's like... Um, let me I'm see. Gonna, I'm gonna. I'm not even gonna try because I'll I'll get called out in the chat for being. I'm wrong, gonna find so. it. NRF. Uh, let's see. Uh, National Resistance Front. There Resistance. We go. There you go. Yeah. Hashtag S- resist. <laughs> so so the claim being, you know, they have thousands of fighters. They've got an awful lot of, um, for the ANA guys that were able to make their way up to Ponchier and and you know what they could carry with them, the vehicles they were able to take with them. Uh, they claim to have a pretty substantial resistance capability. To what extent they any of them or stakeholders are involved in the initial peace talks, May 31st, in order to have achieved that, we would have been having to execute the early stages of withdrawal in quarter four of last year or in the early part of this year. You want to get it, even though the weather gets terrible in Afghanistan and things like that over the winter months, you've got this time period where, you know, planning and uh you know, making these sorts of arrangements logistically makes sense. And what it feels like we ended up doing was the May, you know, the, the new administration came in, they tore up the plans such as they may have been or may not have been uh, under the Trump administration and just kind of threw them out the window and said, no, we're not going to give any credence to things that was done. We're going to do this our way. And it ended up becoming this very rushed, botched circumstances, just completely getting ahead of them kind of situation. Uh, yeah. Very, very, very negative situation. And I think it's because there was no continuity um, of communication or continuity of planning in that transitional phase from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. There was a comment over here that I'm going to get to a little bit later having to do with opium. But before that, I'm opening it up to the panel. So, uh, uh, Geo, thoughts? On what? Uh, Afghanistan? Just, yeah, on Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, this is great. It's amazing. America got its- the global, the global Anglo Empire got its ass handed. Geo, whose side are you on? <laughs> I'm not. I'm on the you side. Actually, you actually live here. Yeah, but go go well, move to Afghanistan. If that's your oh, if that's, that's your opinion. Based, go move to Afghanistan. Based in Red Pump. I'm, I'm no, sure. I mean, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of exercise there. Well, yeah, obvious. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, the thing is, love. Thing is, you have to start thinking of our government as an invading force onto itself. So in a way, we can empathize with the Afghanis in a lot of ways. No, I mean, that's serious. In a serious note, although that is serious, I think that um, it's very it's very interesting, given the history of Afghanistan, how we managed to, even at the, the sort of lack of the traditional terms of what empire is, to think that um, the mission was to import some kind of, I don't know, some kind of democracy or whatever. It's just, and to think that people that grew up now, like I remember I was what, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. Um, And to think that people grew up their whole lives when America is ostensibly in wartime. It's really, it's really, um, 
the tragedy is, I think, like, for the last 10 years, at least since, I would say, Obama's second term, do people still know that we were in Afghanistan? Right? Like, that's, it just, it seemed to be, um, like, like uh, when the Romans were in the end of Gaul, and it was like, they were there, but not really, but kind of, but nobody cared. It's like, when things get exhausted to such a degree. As for the withdrawal, I mean... I just really think it's funny how people are trying to spin this, like the, the narrative that came up was um, Joe Biden is like a martyr because he's preventing, you know, all these other presidents from having to deal with Afghanistan. It's just, it's, it's hilarious, right? It's, it's, it's not serious, but it, like just to all the images that we're seeing of like, we, the Taliban like using peppy memes and, and those people falling from the airplane. And it's, it's really, when we began the war, the world was different when we began Afghanistan. Now that we've sunken totally into the sort of hyper real war of images, it's like the fact that when we left Afghanistan, it's still like the, the whole, um, the, the sort of like thick goo of like internet culture pervaded it, right? Like, it's just really like, because people don't feel the same way anymore that they did when, you know, those towers fell. However they did, let's debatable, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think like, you can't really have the same degree of, um, we're, we're in a moment together sort of thing because people don't really have a loyalty to their own governments anymore. I mean, you could say that's a tragedy or rather it's just a natural progression. I mean, that's why the response is, and oh my God, this is a, like, I mean, people are forcing themselves in the media to say, oh my God, this is a great tragedy. But the vast majority of people that's like, wow, finally, you know, like that's, it's, it's very interesting how the world was when we started this to now. And so, yeah, I don't know. Well, there is an addictive uh, factor, I think, of uh, looking at places where, at least to the casual observer, it looks like there is a lot of more honor-based, tradition-based uh, things there as opposed to America or Canada. You know, even worse, the situation you're oh, living God. in, Geo, over, over there. So I do think that it is attractive to look at these places and being like, what if I was in this uh, Bronze Age mindset? of going with my buddies and, uh, uh, you know, invading places and Picking having a good time. And, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. But uh, Huntsman, I'm curious, and I would love to hear from the Prudentialists as well, but I'm curious what your take is on this sort of uh, edgy response that a lot of people online have had where they do end up siding with the Taliban, at least uh, spiritually, where they see something <laughs> heroic in all the things that they uh you know, they do, you know, the way that they're dressed, it's a throwback to a sl sim simpler time, to say the least. You know, like, there is something that they may see that's freeing about that, as opposed to this, you know, constricting civilization that we're all stuck in. So I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on that. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Um, I'm of two if not conflicting minds, at least certainly uh, they're, they're a little bit wrestling with one another. First is I never really thought we should have been there in the first place. Um, 
and and obviously we've spilled a lot of blood and treasure to prove that case um to the extent so that that is should we have been there no um have i had involvement in the prosecution of that uh, not as a boots on ground guy but certainly as someone who uh, has intermittently been a part of the the supply chain part of it uh, both on the humanitarian and on the defensive side uh, when i say defensive of course i mean offensive um you know so th- there were there so in, in a small way my hands are not clean of this either uh, as far as participating in you know how we prosecuted that. That being said, though, we shouldn't have been there. The way in which we conducted the last probably 90 days of our involvement there was uh, a tragic comedy of just absolute Greek proportions, right? We, we could not have probably managed that situation worse than we did in that last 90 days. And it put a lot of lives at risk that didn't need to be. And it made a situation of we shouldn't have been here Um, or if we should have been here, it should have been a punitive expedition to do one thing and one thing only. And that's find the specific people that we're pretty sure maybe or maybe did not commit this horrific act of terrorism. But if we're going to stand on that rock that we're here only to find Osama bin Laden and, and, and destroy and degrade his network, that was the stated case for going to Afghanistan. And we found ourselves still there 20 years later. And this in this weird, vacuous sort of occupational role uh, where we're not only are we in a place we probably shouldn't be, but we're there for a very long period of time, uh, having spent trillions of dollars to maintain a presence there that culminated in this disaster we've seen in the last 90 days. But so, oh, oh, sorry. Go yeah, on. go ahead. No, go ahead. The question uh, that pops into a lot of people's heads when they uh, do look at uh, the West as being this overly globalistic entity with a lot of special interests that want to get theirs is they would look at something like Afghanistan as being a giant uh, cash grab, as being a situation where companies can make a lot of money. And sure, you could say that companies made a lot of money during the the, uh, aftermath of the Korean War uh, or during the Korean War as well. But at least we ended up uh, rebuilding that place to such a state that, uh, you know, with the kind of like with the Marshall Plan, we did something where now uh, South Korea is in a pretty good place. And I think that uh, it may be owed a bit to what the the Americans did. But here, it really seems like uh, there was a comment earlier having to do with opium, that uh, there is this idea that I'm curious how legitimate it is. I personally have not read about it, but I'm interested in finding out how much did the opium trade have to do with uh, the United States uh, being in Afghanistan? Well, I mean, there's a cynical, there's a cynical case that it was the, you know, reason one A, we were there, reason one B being the, you know, relatively known or suspected mineral wealth of the country as, as well as it's very uh, uh, critical, uh, critical place and, and, and just simple geography, its location on a map. Uh, I probably, as I have gotten older, uh, and certainly far less neoconservative in, in my views. I would say that the cynical reason is probably closer to the truth. Um, if for no other reason than, than the United States, when you look at the activities of when you look at the activities of the White House and you look at the activities of the Department of Defense, very often 
if you really take a step back, they're divorced from the priorities and activities of what you would call OGA or other governmental agencies, which is just another way of saying the alphabet soup, uh, you know, that comprises a lot of the various intelligence apparatus. So oftentimes we do have these priorities that are at war with themselves, where you've got some combination of people in government, however small the group may be of true believers who really believe that we're spreading freedom and prosperity and exporting the values of America to a place in the world that those values have never worked and never will. It's just different. And that's not better or worse. It's just not compatible. And so will, you know, the tribesmen and tribeswomen of Afghanistan ever subscribe to enlightenment notions, you know, that are given to us and handed down from the mountain of John Locke? Probably not. And so we don't really have any business even trying to enforce that particular worldview there. But to the extent that I tend to see things through what is the most pragmatic and uh, logistic, you know, what is the most pragmatic response viewed through the lens of logistics and supply chains? That's where you have to take a look at resources and you have to take a look at infrastructure. And if you look at what the primary resources of Afghanistan are, it is, unfortunately, it is poppy production and it is the mineral wealth of the country. And so if we begin from the lens, that's probably the most legitimate, you know, thing to say, let's at least start there and say, does this play a factor? It, it absolutely had to. And the argument could be made, we were there to make money on it, as we saw with, you know, with the CIA and various other agencies doing in the 80s, where they were running, you know, crack and cocaine on the streets of America to, to fund various projects in South America and elsewhere. We know now that that happened. And as insane as it sounded in the 80s and 90s to say that, we know now that this was a thing that was ongoing. We know about a lot of other crazy things we've gotten up to. So yeah, the cynic in me says, quite possibly, we had a vested interest in what was happening there on that side. The hopeful side of me, you know, the side of me that's like, oh, maybe the better angel of those angels of our natures could still have played a role here is in degrading and disrupting you know, the, the production and trafficking of, of opium from that part of the world. I suspect, as with most things, that it was a combination of participation in, stopping and preventing, and trying to find some way to get our hands on the mineral wealth or at least control the flow of it within Eurasia. If you take all of those things and you say the frame is the United States as a government is at war with itself most of the time, I think to the extent that you subscribe to that frame, we really had three different Americas present there, all trying to enforce one sort of mission directed by the commander in chief. And we're all pretending that we're there for the right reason when we're there for a combination, I think, of very selfish and pragmatic reasons, um, some of which the good things we did there, I think, were an output of bad reasons to be there. And we should celebrate the good things we did do there because we did do some really amazing things there. It kind of sounds but like not America, everything was good. And certainly we weren't noble. Well, it kind of sounds like America itself in a way, like when people talk about very much so. Yeah, the inner the inner workings of the country. And I would love to get the Prudentialist on this as well. One thing I quickly wanted to say, which maybe Prudentialist you can touch on as well, is I believe that before even the Soviets there was a kind of dictatorship, like a iron-fisted dictatorship within Afghanistan. 
I wonder how much that had to do with, uh, let's say, uh, women being able to dress much more freely. It almost seems like when we're talking about uh, third world countries, the only way certain, let's say, enlightenment principles can exist has nothing to do whatsoever with democracy. It seems like they have something to do with just having some iron-fisted dictator there, you know, maybe kind of like a puppet of uh, whichever empire exists. But either way, this iron-fisted dictator makes sure that women can actually go out at night without being afraid. You know, like, that seems to be like, if there's too many people who, let's say, are not educated enough or are not in the mindset of... Uh, wanting to live in a uh, type one not type one civilization we're not even there yet but you know what i mean like more of an advanced civilization then the only way to make sure that happens is with an iron-fisted dictator i still say that being a liberal where i accept liberalism for america but i don't accept it for places that are not ready for liberalism yet but either way prudentialist uh please let me know what's on your mind regarding afghanistan either touching upon what i just mentioned what a uh, huntsman mentioned what geo mentioned uh, take it away my friend Sure. So you look at the situation, and I think that I can agree with Huntsman about having two very different conflicting ideas run through you. Uh, I was young when the reason for this conflict started. I got to watch my father's place of work burn on TV and not know if he was alive or not. And so that was a fun day. But you have this. And for me, I'm wait, wait, wait sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. What was your father's if, if you can mention it? What was your father's place of work? Uh, the Pentagon. Oh, so he served, oh, yeah, yeah, he served for 30 years. Uh, so his whole career actually is sort of a, a record of like the boondoggles in the Middle East, so Desert Storm 03, Troop Surge in 09. But anyways, I'll continue. So you have this weird sort of feeling of like, well, you go in for a mission, you, you're, you know, you're raised in that mindset of what you're supposed to do. And of course, you know, if you look at the 2000 campaign, there's that very odd distinction where both Gore and George W. Bush are adamantly against the idea of nation building. And the United States, 20 years into this conflict, the, the sort of switch changes around 2010, 2011 about what we're, what we're there to do, which is primarily for the reasons of like women building schools, democracy, getting a functional government. Uh, so there's that grand comedy or, you know, Greek tragedy of irony there to, to sort of flourish it. But at the same time, I, I have this sort of feeling of relief that maybe the idealized reason for, you know, why we've stayed, that sort of liberal universalization uh, that gets criticized by people like Ron and Rand Paul saying, like, you can't take your average Afghanistan, you know, citizen or your average Iraqi and turn them into Thomas Jefferson overnight and maybe that's a lesson that can be taken away with that. But I do agree with Huntsman that you've got maybe three or four different reasons as to why we were there unified under this sort of, at least initially, under this common theme of um, getting after those who were responsible for what happened on September 11th. But I mean, Afghanistan plays a vital role for, uh, at least later on, I think, for the reason why we stayed, a reason being that, you know, it's a geographical sort of in the middle of the way between China's interests, as well as Russia's interests in Eurasia, you know, it borders states that are in the CTSO, which is sort of Russia's own security alliance and umbrella agreement in Eurasia. Um, recently, as we've seen the Belt and Road Initiative develop, especially within the Chinese-Pakistan economic corridor, um, there's been growing concern that Pakistan, uh, that area would be a springboard for 
Afghanistan to be a part of it and incorporated if the United States were to pull out, which I mean, in the past, the Chinese have been used as leverage with negotiations with the Taliban and both the Trump and the Obama administration to have the Chinese present during peace talks and in negotiations. So there are plenty of reasons why we stayed. I do agree with you that um, opium plays a huge factor in there uh, during our occupation. Opium initially dropped and then we sort of start taking control of things and then opium production is at an all time high. Um, so there's a lot going on in that factor, but the other thing to consider in this, and I talk about international relations in my area on my channel. Um, I look at things from a neo-realist lens, specifically offensive realism. I do not think that we will stop any sort of presence there, um, before the pullout is in as Huntsman talked about like the last 90 days in those last 90 days, you had, you know, members of, you know, secretary of defense's Lloyd Austin having, um, you know, undersecretaries meet in areas like uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, about possible basing rights for observation posts and potential airstrikes, which, of course, Vladimir Putin put his foot down and said no. Uh, but not to mention the fact that there's been significant pressure for, uh, from the U.S. onto China in the last few years to identify other Islamist groups in the area, such as the East Turkmenistan Islamic Movement and a variety of others. So I do not think that our presence, whether it is clandestine or, you know, physically with boots on the ground, I do not think it's over. Um, the tragedy of great power politics will continue in any way, shape or form. But at the same time, I, I know that good was done there. I know that a lot of things were done, whether it was for infrastructure, for education, for health reasons. It just, I, I do share my father's frustration that, you know, you have to wonder of the changing narratives of the blood and treasure that was spent and spilt, it, it makes you wonder what was it for and what happens next. And I'll leave it at that. That was a well-said prudentialist. And uh, Huntsman, do you agree with the uh, prudentialist outlook there? And also, uh, what exactly do you see on the horizon in Afghanistan with uh, China? We've all seen that uh, famous photo of the, uh, of, of uh, all, you know, they were wearing masks too, by the way. But, uh, you know, you had all, you know, all the Taliban people in the row with the Chinese people. And there is this whole Belt and Road Initiative now. So how much is this going to change the uh, power play between the United States and China and the world? Wait, to who? Oh, to uh, Huntsman. Oh. Sorry, I was muted there. Um <clears throat> So there, there, there are several emergent schools of thought on China's role, uh, both past, present, and in the intermediate future, I would say. Um, I think looking beyond a, a few-year horizon as far as Afghanistan involving anybody that has any sort of, uh, you know, hegemonic or, you know, uh, sort of imperial uh, ambitions or behaviors, it's Afghanistan, man. It's never going to be the kind of place that can be tamed by Russia, by China, by the United States. Um, we've all come at it from different angles. Uh, China appears to be in a position where they think that, you know, promises of protection and wealth are going to be different than the sort of offensive mindset that the United States and, and the Soviet Union took there. So whether it's punitive expeditions or trying to put a leash around the, the nation via trade, uh, I don't see it working on a long-term basis. Um, in fact, my, my, my sense here is that we're seeing a couple things happen where uh, 
China's involvement began under even a different paradigm with Xi Jinping as, you know, as, as uh, pick a term for, for him as sort of the grand leader uh, of the CCP and of China. I think what they wanted to do has changed. Uh, they've been involved there for, for years and years and years and years, and we knew it, and it was sort of an open secret in the United States, certainly within the national security community, that, that China was aiding and abetting uh, a lot of the disruptive activities that were happening there. And it's no secret what they want. They want a oasis of stability uh, at, at a country that has, has long been one of the axis of the world. They see it as part of their sort of ancient uh, trade domain, uh, with it being, you know, with Afghanistan very much being part of the, the ancient Silk Road. And now they've got the new Silk Road, the Belt Road Project. You've got pipelines running through there, electric transmission lines. You've got the vast mineral wealth that, that we all suspect is, is locked away uh, under, you know, under the various locations there. And so it's no secret of what China's play probably was when it first started. But now China's moving into a, a different sort of frame where because of its own more aggressive expansionist actions in the last couple of years, the way in which they were going about it is, is now there's a lot of sunlight or daylight on what they're doing and how they're going about it. The world is more aware of the abuse of the Uyghurs um, to the extent that the Taliban are going to rise to protect the Uyghurs. I, I don't see that happening. Um, it's a very difficult place to move men and material. So even if somebody was going to physically, utilize Afghanistan as a launching point or a staging point to cause damage against China, um, it would be very, very difficult to do so. If you even look, you don't have to be there. You just look at a topographical map to realize how difficult that, that activity would be. And I think China is, is, is now coming to a point where they realize a lot of this. So to the extent they can co-opt and control the Taliban or persuade them to do things that benefit China. And that could be things like uh, being a buffer uh, against the, the increasing, um, increasing uh, if not crisis, but certainly complexity of uh, Balochistan, uh, you know, uh, of the issue with the Balochs, of the issue with Iran, of the issue with uh, India and Pakistan, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, I think the Prudentialist mentioned. You've got a lot of factors and dominoes that have been sort of stacked up in the situation now where China doesn't really have any great options, but they've got a number of maybe decent options that could work. And I think agenda number one for everybody was get the United States out. And now that that has more or less been accomplished, uh, now the question is going to be, what is the power structure? Long term, I think this actually, this move by China, I think it's going to benefit them in the short term. I think they will find ways to access the geography and, you know, and the minerals of uh, Afghanistan and make some use of that. Uh, but I think what they're going to find here is a different scenario where they're going to be with the activities there triggering conflict, additional conflict with India, uh, certainly with Russia potentially even with, you know, with Iran, with Qatar, with Turkey, with other countries that also have a vested interest there. To the extent that trade can protect China from its own worst behaviors, and they think that maybe if they just throw enough money at the problem, it's going to work. I think what we've learned is that whether you're coming from a communist, pure communist, pure capitalist, or some sort of hybrid uh, of the two, the way China operates, the increasing nationalism of Xi Jinping, the increasing authoritarianism with which he's going about things, 
is going to fairly quickly start to, I think, great on a lot of the other powers and, and regional players and is, is going to start producing some really unexpected issues for them uh, between now and, say, 2030. So whatever their plans are, I don't think they're going to work. I think they're going to I think they're going to find that that's a part of the world that, that's going to swallow them alive long term the same way it has everybody else. Well, yeah, it's uh, Afghanistan is the best representation of uh, war when it comes to world politics. That's what I believe. It definitely well, yeah, it is just the, it, uh, uh, destroy it eats up decay. That's yes, exactly. But uh, when it comes to what is going to happen with America, when America right now the people themselves don't really have that much of a trust in uh, wait wait their you're getting ahead of yourself, love. You're getting you're getting ahead of the issue though. Uh, Why? Well, I just want to say like the, for the reasons as to why we were there. Now, this was laid out in the grand chessboard by Brzezinski. I remember Alex Jones said this like way back in 2010, but there are other resources. Um, Zbigniew said that America has to control, as Huntsman was saying, um, a whole swath of different places from Pakistan, Afghanistan. They have to do a war with Iran and so forth because of the minerals, because of uh, the resources, the pipeline to China. Um, but also, I mean, we're sort of skipping over the lucrativeness by which the you know different industries have been propped up i mean the biggest one being the pharmacological industry in america um there's been reports of various uh, sexual slavery and trading and so forth from various nato allies um there's also like other kind of weird creepy coincidences even just around like for example the bin laden family you know like the airlift of evil and everything so it's it's really interesting how throughout the world it's like the, this one place in 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 time and history is so, so significant because it's literally a bottleneck to these different civilizations and i think like the people that are in the know it's like they realize this so i think that's what motivated us to stay there and to occupy afghanistan for so long that and i don't know maybe it could be some kind of a ziggurat in the middle of afghanistan that has a, the tomb of ahura mazda or something i don't know um but i think that it's it's really interesting how we did stay there for so long but a question i would ask is if, what, what if um what if it were the case that after 2001 when the initial surge was over uh i know this is like a total hauntology what would happen if we just pulled out after 2001, after we destroyed the Taliban the first time? Or, sorry, was it Al-Qaeda? Yeah. What would America look like now, right? Like, what would happen? Would we have the financial crisis? Would the would the American right be like neocon? Would it embrace the older roots of people like Pat Buchanan? Like, who knows, right? Like, so, I mean, I mean, this is a question more for the prudentialist, but also, like, before we talk about what America is going to look like now, I think that's pretty interesting. What happened if we did pull out when we completed the mission initially? What, what was the what was it called? Operation Enduring Freedom was that the first one? Prudentialist. Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom was in oh. 03, but then in Afghanistan, I couldn't tell you what the name was off the top of my head. Enduring Freedom, I think, was one of the uh, yeah. continued yeah. missions afterwards. But what would happen if we did pull out in 2001 when we got rid of Al-Qaeda? Like, what would have... Yeah, Zarathustra's old stomping grounds. There you go. Um, that's why we needed to occupy it. Sure. Um, 
I mean, well, consider the political environment of 2000. Say we say we leave in 2002. Say that you you for some reason we've magically decided to okay, the Al Qaeda has been eliminated, training yeah. grounds have been eliminated. Um, you like know, with Mogad, like with Somalia. Sure, but I mean, years prior, yeah. The the Somalia pullout's a little more complicated than that, I think. Well, but yeah. um, you have to keep in mind of the political situation. So the. Pat Buchananism, the American paleoconservative isolationist idea had been dead for some time. I mean, the 2000 election kind of had him routed out as a racist, had him pretty much excised from the Republican Party. So I don't think that you're going to I would I, I wouldn't expect that to sort of be so fervently embraced. But say in this hypothetical, it does. I do think that you'll see significant pushback from more of the war hawkish neoconservative types in Congress, especially um, within his own administration. Um, mm, yeah, I mean, especially because that was a different time. If we wanted to go back 20 years and feel what it was like afterwards, I mean, he, he laid it out very clearly in that in his speeches, you know, I hear you, the whole world hears you. Um, I think, however, if he was to simply do that, I think that your relationship with Europe is significantly a lot better at this time, um, especially with France. But um, and I, I don't know what the world would look like if that were the case. Would we I really have had can't. Obama? I think you probably would have gotten Kerry in 04 or whoever would have been the Dem nominee at that yeah. time. But I can't, you're asking for a speculation that I don't think you could really, without really just reviewing everything from the late nineties to two thousands to really answer accurately. That's all I'm going to say there. Well, even like in, in Afghanistan, you had like during the nineties, you had a number of like, like almost civil wars, right? Like, I mean, I know they, uh, you had the Northern Alliance. The yeah, yeah, they got rid of all the Soviet uh, people, like the president or whatever his name was. Like that would have looked different. Even like the picture up until like nine eleven happened, like the the way that the Middle East looked was different than how we pictured it. But it's like, uh, yeah, you're right. It is a hypothetical, but it is interesting if we were to have pull, pulled out initially, maybe two thousand two, two thousand three. What, what the landscape would have looked like. Maybe the neocons would have been totally disempowered. Well, you all, you have to keep yeah. in mind, it's two two different issues. So, of course, the response to 9-11, and then you're talking 0203. I mean, the issue in the narrative surrounding Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction is still Oh, happening. yeah, that is right. Yeah. Um, so it's important to keep all that in mind. Um, but I guess to sort of springboard off this, because um, Huntsman made some really great points that in the I think that you're right in the short term that this might seem beneficial to China in the long term. I think that the the wonderful goal, I think, of both Russia and the United States would to be have China entangled in there. They already have a ballooning debt crisis. And that and that's something that even um, Balding was talking about on Twitter. Uh, I think that that would be something that either party would love to take advantage of. I do think, however, China's more immediate interest to sort of secure its own territorial sovereignty within its demographics, because it's partially why we're seeing issues with the Uyghurs in the Zhejiang region, would be, you know, what what is that province border? It borders Pakistan, it borders the Badashan province, which specifically has the Wakhan Corridor, a very mountainous region with numerous groups of terrorist organizations, one of them being the ETIM. Um, some of the other ones include other in, uh, Iranic and Indo-Aryan groups that are also Islamist, um, you know, remnants of various other organizations are there as well. So I would imagine that if anything, in the sort of immediate term, that we'll probably see a buildup in the Zhejiang province of Chinese military forces. That's me speculating, but I think with that high amount of groups that are not Pashtuns, some of them are, you know, uh, Uyghurs that are not in China, 
I do think that that'll be something that will pique China's interest. But I do think in the long term, whatever their goal may be, which I think maybe is to get to Iran, uh, so you have access, you know, to you know, the um, to have a, a warm water port that's not specifically the Strait of Hormuz, and maybe not have to worry so much about the United States and the Saudis. But who knows? Again, this is a lot of speculative stuff because we don't know what's going to happen in the long term. Um, but no, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I, yeah, and, and they brought up a good map to, to show off where that is. Isn't it crazy how like uh, China borders, well, almost somewhat borders, the two like major conflict zones of America where their asses got handed to them in the last like 60 years? They border Vietnam, they were supplying the Viets, and they were bordering Afghanistan somewhat. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. how. Well, and they provided material support to the North Koreans. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, and troops, if I recall. Yes. Um, Huntsman, any uh, any thoughts on uh, this uh, the- what-if scenario? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I, t- I take it as this was probably strategic overreach to, to the extent that China has involvement there. Um, I think that this is going to be, I, I think in the short term, it will benefit them. Because for a time, everybody will go along with and pretend, I think, that this is what they all want. Uh, But you're talking about not just a part of the world that has proven itself to be largely ungovernable by great power interests uh, or even conquerable by great power interests. But I think you're talking about we're looking at if we step all the way back, we in my view, are entering a completely different and new era of uh, how how nation states not only exist, but cooperate with one another and how they, uh, the relationship between the state and the individual. And what we're, I think we're going to see here is that on a macro scale, largely the world is going to kind of sort of resemble what it did during the cold war it's going to bifurcate a little bit uh or a significant amount i guess at the nation state level where you're going to have a a sort of china and then to some extent russia-led sphere of cooperation that's going to be driven by eurasia uh, and then you're going to have uh sort of an anglosphere uh, emerge and it will be a competition of value systems uh, it will also be a competition of resource availability and manufacturing and innovation capability. But beneath that, and I think probably the more important trend is the extent to which individuals will will tolerate and also have the ability to organize and cooperate to secure their own interests independent of a nation state. And that's a trend we look at in the United States. You see localism, you see Bitcoin being a really big thing. You look at a lot of what the sort of emergent trends are as far as the ways in which we transact commerce or even conduct conflict, the rise of um, or the re-rise, if you will, of, of you know, paramilitary organizations and private, you know, uh, private military contractors. Those are all, I think, representations of the fact that the nation state model, the West, what we maybe think of as the Westphalian model, is failing, is failing. And China is going to get swept along right with that tide. And I think Afghanistan, do I think it will be China's undoing as a great power? 
No, I, I don't think that that's going to be the case, but I think it's going to be the decisions they've made there in the last few years and the extent to which Afghanistan seems to disrupt everybody's best laid plans is going to swallow them up in a different way than it did Russia in a different way than it did us, but nonetheless is going to be just as potent of a factor. I think we're going to find a situation where Russia largely sees that part of Central Asia, not certainly not as Russian, but certainly as this is kind of our sphere of influence, guys. Mm-hmm. Most, you know, a lot of these countries uh, speak Russian as a primary mm-hmm. or yeah, as they a were second language. Former USSR uh, colonies. Absolutely. And, and, and the Russians were I also agree. Kicking, they have a kicking... right to that place. Well, right, Gio, love? that's that's like saying that's like saying England has a right to uh, India if we were going to go kind, that direction. Um, well, kind, maybe not the England of nowadays, but the, and certainly the, the and England again, of and again, the nineteen fifties. Even keep I think. in mind, well, keep in mind what I said before. <laughs> it was the Soviets that didn't give a rat's ass about helping anybody who was helping them escape after yeah, they that, left Afghanistan. That's what I mean. They all got <laughs> they all got hung out in the streets, literally. Yeah, but you see, that's the, the big. Uh, the that's that's why I always say we got to compare one country to another. And this brings me to another question for Huntsman uh, to. Uh, jump off of what uh, you were just talking about. This goes a little bit away from Afghanistan, but I think it still has the same principle in mind, which is if we are going to be seeing uh, these uh, world powers, let's say, uh, try and acquire more territory, while at the same time, different experimentation is going on within uh, the countries that don't follow this nation-state Westphalian model like you were talking about, then if we look, for example, at a country like um, Estonia or uh, Finland... These countries, they uh, are not in need to have more seaports. And I'd say, like with uh, Russia, for example, if Russia has one more seaport and has got plenty of seaports already, but if it gets one more seaport, I don't think it's going to matter one bit compared to the kind of innovation that the two countries I just mentioned right now were able to come up with, despite being very small. And what I'm curious as far as what's going to happen here is if... Russia sees it being pretty easy to just go in and conquer their neighbors who are also, you know, the former Soviet bloc countries. Um, What exact precedent would that set in the future when it comes to, let's say, a country that was once very innovative and uh, economically very, you know, very prosperous, like uh, the ones that I just mentioned, end up being under the thumb of a dictatorial power? I'm just curious, like, if that does happen, and I hope it doesn't. But if that does happen, how do you see that playing out? Same with China. If China, let's say, starts to acquire a country that may be, you know, like Taiwan, for example, that may have already, you know, experienced what it not may have, definitely has experienced what it's like to live in a more Western style. What do you foresee happening in both of those cases? The best thing the United States could do right now is encourage the sort of things at a massive scale and even be a part of it, participate in it. What Scandinavia is doing, what Estonia and and Latvia and Lithuania are doing. And I I think this is just the boomer optimist in me, but I think that the, the, the number one thing that the United States at one time exported and and could potentially again was a culture of hope and 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 i say hope not in the sense of that vague sort of airy oh everything's going to be okay but hope that 
a combination of good governance and technological innovation and allowing individuals a little bit more freedom to do the things that they want to do, to transact commerce the way they wish to transact it, to live the way they want to live. That particular kind of hope that's born in, in an average human being who is not told, this is your lot in life, this is the lane you stay in. If we can find a way to, to say, to point not just at ourselves and say, America's got it all figured out, but look, if you've broadly fit the category of a Finland or an Estonia uh, or a Somaliland, which is not a country, but despite some of the issues a little bit with Somaliland is, is a really remarkable success story in a, in a, in a or collective that is fighting for independence to be recognized as a country. The best thing we could do is elevate all of those success stories and the Polands and the, and, and, and the alliances of countries like that, like the three C's initiative. If we take those things as the United States and say, the United States is going to step back from being the global, you know, hegemonic dominant power. And we're going to put ourselves in a position where we want to facilitate the success and the freedom and the ability to do really amazing things. And we want to spread that and export that capability around the world as much as possible. I think that's our best play. So instead of saying the world has to be like America, we're going to say, you know what? The world ain't going to be like America. It never will be. In so many ways, for good and bad, we are a very unique sort of inflection point in global history. There has never been us. There will never be us again, for better or worse. But to the extent that we can inform and influence whatever's to come in the next 20 years, the best thing I think we can do is draw a contrast between not only the way in which China behaves, but the way in which we've behaved in the latter part of the 20th century the stupid, idiotic, ridiculous things that we've done as far as regime change, as far as thinking we've got it all figured out and that we need to make the world more like us. We need to do less of that and more of saying the unique power of America is that we're a country that was founded on giving individuals the ability to the maximum extent practicable, the, the rights, the recognition and the rights that they can do what they need to do and dis disassociate ourselves from saying, do things our way, forget it, do things your way, and we'll help you and we'll empower that. We're still the greatest economic engine in the world, particularly with our consumer appetites. But how would we you see that being practically done? That's what I'm curious about. So I think the biggest way to do it is we need to, as much as possible, disassociate ourselves from this idea of multilateralism. NATO was great for a time. NATO is no longer great. And, and I have said that, and I will die on that hill, and I say that as someone who is friends and business associates even with people that have been key parts of NATO at the leadership level over the years. But NATO is not a model that fits where the world is going right now. What we have seen is, is that our, our strongest baseline parts of NATO, historically, France, Germany, the UK are all operating in a way that to some extent or another is a little bit at odds with the US. So this model of transatlanticism does not work maybe quite as well as it did when it was simply the transatlantic plus Anglosphere aligned against the Soviet Union. That, that world has gone. So what we need to do is as much as possible find bilateral or small scale multilateral ways in which 
we can step into a Somaliland and say, what resources do you guys have and what can we do to help not only develop those resources, but do so in a way that if we get, if we as America get hit by a bus tomorrow and we step out of the picture, you Somaliland can still be uh, to the extent you choose to be a prosperous country and a country that serves the interest of the individual. We have the ability to do that. The, the, the resource curse to the extent that people agree that maybe it's a real thing or not, but this idea that great colonialist type behaviors and powers come in and say, you have a thing we want for this period of time and we're going to enforce our way on it because we want that resource and we're going to give you money back and pretend that you as a country have any sort of say in doing anything for yourself outside of what we allow. We, we as America have to do away with that model and say it has to be mutually beneficial and not only mutually beneficial i think we have to weight the benefits towards the country with the resources wait do you also mean something like let's say the international monetary fund which is not america but that's just like an example of something where there are certain requirements that it wants from a country at which point it would start giving more money like, would you say doing away with something like that in place of uh, in place of what? I would I would argue we have to impose fewer requirements on country. If you take World Bank money or IMF money or whomever money at this point, it comes with a huge number of strings attached. Right. It comes with uh, not not only do you have to derive a certain amount of value and 10 and, percent and to the big man. Right. Whoever the big man may be, whether it's, you know, Joe Biden in this case of the joke, but but also any sort of supranational entity, whether it's the UN or the IMF or the World Bank or whomever. Th this idea that supranational entities can find consensus in a way that benefits everybody is absurd. I don't think that's possible. I think we need to scale back from that and say that all of us interacting in our own to the extent we can, first and foremost, the interests of a family, then the interests of a community, then the interests of a regional body or a pendant body, and then as a nation, and then as a collective of nations, if you invert the model the way we've built in the 21st century and get away from this League of Nations, United Nations idea that consensus is a good thing, I don't think consensus is a good thing. I think argumentation and debate, and I think the conflict of trade and the conflict of ideas and systems is a good thing. It's a, it's a scalpel. It's a razor that teaches us how to actually get along in a productive and meaningful way so that we don't end up in a situation where we go to war. So for America, it's less IMF model, less World Bank model, less United Nations model, and more saying, what do we have that benefits you? What do you have that benefits us? And to what extent can we make those two things come together in a way that ensures we both get what we want. But with America being such a large country, being the dominant player globally, I think we also have a bit of a Spider-Man, Uncle Ben sort of with great power and great economic spending power comes great responsibility to the extent that we can lift these countries up and just say, we have no strings attached. We will help you develop these resources and we hope like hell that you are going to give back to us some sort of commensurate value, but we're going to do this because we can, not because it only benefits us. If there we can is, do that, I think that's a better well, model than what China offers. There is one, uh, 
problem that I foresee here, and I think that would be a beautiful uh, thing if that were to happen, I want to look at what happens when there is some kind of a gap of power. And this is something that I talk about often on BTR. So Afghanistan would actually be a pretty bad example of this. Like we talked about before, it's the graveyard of empire. So it almost feels like, fine, China, go into Afghanistan, see what happens. But regarding other countries that are out there, my and we are going to go back to Afghanistan soon. Well, I hope we are not, but you know what I mean, like the, the conversation is. But regarding other countries that are developing right now, if we were to have said, let's say, back during the Cold War, that, you know what, Korea, uh, you know, take care of your own problems. Or if we would have said that to countries in, you know, regardless of all the corruption that was going on, you know, like the Latin American front when it comes to Soviet influence back in the day. Or we could talk about today and all the bases that we have around the world and uh, China and Russia. So when it comes to that gap of power scenario where, okay, if we were to focus on ourselves, if we were not to impose a lot of these impositions, what would be the logical conclusion when it comes to what these other two countries would do? Because if they weren't on the uh, field, it would be a totally different scenario, but they are. So I don't know. Huntsman, what do you think? And I would love to hear from the uh, Prudentialists as well. And Gio. I'd rather hear from those two, man. I've, I have talked way too friggin' much. All right, uh, credentials, <laughs> go for it, buddy. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the idea of that model and that alternative is a way to export it. And I, in a way, you could actually fit that with sort of the general basis of what American grand strategy is. George Friedman kind of says it best in his book, The Next 100 Years. I recommend anyone to read that just for the speculation, but also like the really grounded stuff he talks about. And the, the outline of the grand strategy is pretty much like three things like one maintain economic and military supremacy and the way that you maintain that is of course sea lane control go back to to uh alfred thayer from almost over 100 years ago uh the second thing is is to maintain a coalition of alliances for trade and for security and then the third is always to prevent a coalition from challenging you politically or strategically and i really think in this sort of global rebuke of a lot of these international systems and orders that have been put down. We see this a lot with the European Union where they talk about, you know, Poland or Hungary or Belarus, where it's just like, we've got $3 billion in economic aid that we're willing to hand out if you just democratize a little more, which of course is always to, to play the EU's game. I think that if you as the United States were to go out into the world stage and say, listen, we're not going to impose this order on you. We're not like the other guys. We want to empower the beauty and the respect that we've learned our lesson. What can we do to make sure that you as a nation and as a people are self-sufficient and not necessarily buying into the model of the last 30 or 40 years or so? That would be great. Um, do I see it happening with this administration or anytime soon? Not necessarily, I think, for political, ideological, and profit motive reasons. Um, but when you talked about the idea of a, of a vacuum, I guess you're referring to there, Lev, the idea that Russia or China is not involved in the region. Well, Russia and China are already involved yeah. in the region. I just mean in any region except for Afghanistan. And I know this is the Afghanistan stream and all that, but I think it is an important issue to look at when it comes to the future of America. Because everybody except for Geo here is living in America. I mean, Canada might as well be America, right? Yeah. But, uh, like the future, we don't get the benefits yeah. of being American. It's America's top hat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. For a uh, beaver top hat. Exactly. Yeah, we are we're exactly. tipping our beaver hat with our hands, which is Alaska. Yes. Um, but no. But, so like, when there's a power vacuum, right? Typically, there's always going to be someone that tries to step in. There's no governing international world order. 
um, the world's order internationally is inherently anarchic. And so whoever can secure power typically is the one that tries to use those sort of international institutions for their will. It's the same way that kind of like the United States uses its power to back up Israel on the world stage when the UN, when virtually every other nation state condemns it. And more recently, we can kind of see the Chinese influence putting out through either soft or hard power uh, with like the WHO and what's recently happened. And I'll leave it at that before we get in trouble. Thank you. Thank you for being so considerate. (laughs) I try. Um, But you, I I really do think that, you know, what might happen for the U.S., I, I would love for our lesson to be learned. I I think globally, you will see sort of this retrenchment, uh, especially as there's been a lot more talk about China. There's been that saber rattling. There's been concerns about its economy. There is a rivalry there. I do think that like many things that the U.S. government does, I do think that it uh, either overestimates or over-exaggerates certain strategic and political threats. China has a lot of similar problems to we do in regards to demographics, our monetary policy, overextension. It's a, it's a curse of that of you know, the, the game of empire. I, I do foresee, though, in the future, especially if we take a look at the Eurasian region to bring it back to Afghanistan, even though the United States wants to keep playing the game, either to disrupt the other two parties at hand, I, you will see a much more multipolar world between, say, Russia, the United States and its respective Arab states within its sphere of influence, uh, Russia with its near abroad of the former, you know, Soviet states, the stands. And then, of course, China with, you know, its ethnic interests and its increasing relationship with Pakistan. Um, I, it'll be a multipolar interest in that area. Whether or not it leads to conflict, I don't know. I certainly hope not. I think the ongoing Well, I want to say it's still relatively positive, despite Biden's um, continuance of the Trump tariffs, the still relatively positive trade expectations between the United States and China, I think will hopefully forestall any conflict because I buy into that sort of Dave Copeland economic interdependence theory. But uh, Gio, what are your thoughts? I think, I mean, as as nice as that is a project, I just don't see any particular political will on the part of the American empire, the the sort of Eurasianist vision of the future to allow for the passive propping up of different um, fronts of innovation, let's say. I, I'm just, I'm too cynical of it. I do think that the region will basically be swallowed as a whole into uh, a war of competing interests, but I wouldn't discount the ability of the Taliban to at least marshal or negotiate some of them. Unfortunately, I think like, I mean, as much as I criticize him and as much as I think he was a failure, I do think that Trump, if Trump were to have been reelected, I think we would have been a better position in terms of um, managing all of these different interests because this sort of like old guard, neoliberal, neocon, sclerotic, uh, dementia-ridden regime of Biden, I don't think that... uh, the old guard has any sort of political will to like even just the allusions to the the attack that happened we're we're gonna go back in there which probably won't happen it's just well it's a combination of sclerotic and theater kids that seems exactly no but but that's the thing it's like the boomers they had to hand over the keys to their zoomer grandchildren because us millennials were such terminal failures and everything we're a bunch of fail sons. Mm. So I think like... No, it's still millennials too. Like it was the team that uh, 
uh, oh, was, for yeah, example, like yeah, the yeah. Jur- like the journalist. I don't remember the gu- the name of that guy, but David Reboy's book talked about it. How there was this guy who was in charge of the press for the Obama admin, and oh, how he got yeah. all these bright-eyed and bushy-tailed journalists yeah. just fed them whatever information he wanted them to recite. Yeah. And that was, that was they Ben did. Rhodes and his legendary echo chamber. There uh, we go. What were, a what a they were doing it on the. They're doing it on the journalist, fucking... uh, journ o list, uh, like news server. So it was <laughs> very old, old school way. Yeah. yeah. And our ben Rhodes them... is such a particularly odious bug, man. We got to just... get him on the stream. But uh, wait, no, are but, they, well, are my they point... still here? By the way, no, I'm, I'm just curious. Oh, I quick. think are, are they still here for the uh, ob- uh, for the Biden admin? Like, have a lot of them crossed back into power from the Obama days? Yeah, as far as the journalists go, or no? Oh yeah, definitely. No. No, Huntsman disagrees. You're muted, by the way. There yeah, we no, I, I, um, I was using the temporary unmute there. Did um, they recycle a lot of people? To to some extent, they did, but only the really, I think, true believers. I think what we're seeing within this administration is the the last gasp of an old guard. Of, a, of Democrats, which was more sort of, and boy, I'm going to bring a name up here that's probably going to be a lot of fun in the chat, but sort of the Clintonian third way type of mm-hmm. type of group, yeah. which, and, and I James see Carville, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, but I see, I see Ben Rhodes as, as part of that, that sort of interregnum or that trend, that transition from whatever the Democrats were from say, Jimmy Carter through Tip O'Neill through Bill Clinton to then you had this sort of brief period. And then you had Obama, who was really, in my mind, kind of a transitory uh, figure. He was he was where the Democrat Party began to sort of shift itself from one thing to another because he was yeah. while Clinton and others were sort of beloved by Wall Street and in and, and some ways, be, and certainly because of the support for offshoring and things like that, Obama was the first to begin to sort of square these centers of power within the Democrat Party that existed on the financial side, which was the kind of latent love of captured regulatory interests and things like that amongst Wall Street. But he also was the first to kind of bring the code pink very fringy radical elements into the mainstream of the Democrat party. And now what we see with the Democrats is I see a party in a little bit of a war with itself, where you've got emergent power centers that are kind of falling under Kamala Harris and her people. You've got Biden and the old guard to some extent, and you got a few of these that are like kind of in the middle trying to survive and trying to find a way through it. It's the same on the Republican side. You've got very uh, strong America first new right, uh, individuals and politicians that have kind of lined up at a time for a time we're under Trump's banner now are to some extent under Trump's banner, but also kind of doing their own thing. And then you have the, the, the neoconservative, neoliberal, the Bill Crystals of the world and things like that, that are politically homeless at this point, because they've betrayed everybody on the right and nobody on They're the left trusts them. Now. That's what Very they much always, so. yeah, you know. Very much so. So we've got huge amounts of factionality happening, even within this one administration that is in charge. And I think it's an administration that is war with itself. I think that's why we've seen a lot of the bungling in Afghanistan uh, over the last so many days, because you've got these competing centers of power. And what that means for America, 
I'm not sure, but I think the Ben Rhodeses of the world, the guys that are the spin masters, the guys that think that they can reconcile all of these various competing narratives into one thing and then push that narrative out it, it to the extent they're able to, man, it's going to be just such a tough, like it's such a tough road to hoe for them. Right. Because social media has, I think in a lot of ways, democratized spin uh, more than it's enabled it. If I, if, if we take a look all the way back, but I don't know, that's my take. I'm wrong. Like 49% of the time. So before we go back to Afghanistan, I want to make sure, Gio, you uh, uh, get to finish uh, the uh, thought that you had earlier. Sorry, Gio. No, no. <laughs> oh, by the way, Minotaur, $7 via Patreon. Nice. Thank you so much, Minotaur, buddy. You are back in it. I appreciate that so much, man. I Thank you. For those well, in the chat, listen, off topic. Someone mentioned CM Punk. You want to watch a good CM Punk match? Go and watch a Kenta match. There you go. That's my hot take. Uh, stole all yeah. of his moves. Um, more like more like CM Prison Punk. Well, they call him on on uh, on 4chan Asp. Uh, they call him Cuckman Phil. So that's uh, no. I think <laughs> fuck um, with Afghanistan. What's interesting is that like. I think like people they don't pay attention enough to like what happened before the Americans went in there during the nineties and the early two thousands, um, specifically with the, the, the way that the Taliban managed to basically wrestle things from the Northern Alliance. I think that it, the, like what, what happened, like only like three countries recognized them as the legitimate rule. And that's my interesting, an interesting question that I wanted to ask is that what, it, what does it mean? Like in the context of the Afghan war for the past 20 years, what does legitimacy even mean, really? Because I'm was Hamid Karzai's government that we formed there was that legitimate with the elections that were, uh, well, you know, it's or is the Taliban a legitimate regime, right? Like that's that's like the inherent ambiguity with the way like that Huntsman was mentioning, the inherent ambiguity with the sort of regionalist or civilization model of the world picture as opposed to the like the anglo um atlanticist you know westphalian picture of the nation state and i know like we've been talking about this literally since like the mid 80s about whoa what happens when the nation state dissolves but now we're seeing that the nation it's not like this sort of end of history kojevian thing of like the totalizing state will dissolve the you know it's it's not even this like flowery neoliberal bullshit from the 90s about well the ngos and the the different liberation movements are going to dissolve the state no it's more of that the inherent uh atlanticist model of the state itself is fragile from a number of inherent contradictions on both the material level the geopolitical cultural level and i would say the spiritual level of course mm. I know, would, Lev, you're not a include... fan of that of the particular person who put that thesis out. Well, how but the, that the Eurasian include... spirit can never be contained. No, but, from... I, but, I, but I am curious. Does that mean that I'm referring uh, Dug... to Alexander Dugan? Does that by the way. mean that Dugan's um... going to have to go to Putin and tell him to uh, <laughs> stop it with the nation state of Russia? No more nation state of Russia. Is that is that what you're saying, Gio? I think so. I think that you're going to see a revanchist movement in that region of the world the way that you will see it in China with Asia. Now, I think the biggest problem for China, of course, is Japan, obviously. I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Japan's going anywhere anytime soon. Wait, what do you but, mean re revanchist? 
like they're going to probably like reinstate their claim to uh the former satellite states that's probably i mean that's what they want but i mean well that's, that's imperialism yeah but see it's not imperialism when china does love didn't you hear logo when he said that come on um i mean, th- I mean that is th- by the it way it is imperial is, but that's imperialism it's more of a direct imperialism but when it comes to afghanistan i i think like well huntsman what do you i want to get prudentialist and then huntsman what's going to happen when china has a pipeline and there's a bunch of Chinese workers and engineers there, and the Taliban decides that their deal that they got was raw dogged, and they just end up blowing up like a few dozen Chinese scientists and uh, pipeline workers. What's going to happen? Is China going to send troops in Afghanistan? I mean, it's relative. It would be relatively easier for them to go than America, right? In terms of just raw resources, but really. I don't know if I could see China putting up with a war the way that America did. What are they going to do? Are they going to do the whole, like, uh, we're going to impose um, Maoism upon the Afghanis? Like, I don't think that's their mindset. I just, Mm-mm. I don't know what would happen in that. Like, if if we just let China do whatever the fuck we want in the Middle East, like like we do with Africa, because we don't care about Africa. So. I think if we let China do what they want in Afghanistan, it's going to go worse for them than it probably did for us. And I have two mm-hmm. two reasons for saying that. Um, the the first is that I'm trying to say this in a way that you know all the spyware of Zoom is not going to get me like you know red flag. <laughs> Someone shows up outside my house. Um, no, I, I, I tease. But the the first is that we have to acknowledge that. China economically and culturally and militarily is a completely different beast than the United States. Mm-hmm. And to, to the extent that they are aware of their own flaws and, and capabilities, China has built itself as a mainly a maritime and to some extent space, but mainly a maritime and a cyber force. Uh, and, and then as far as their rocketry and their missiles, right? And they built all of that for, for, for one reason and one reason alone, as a hedge against first the United States and then against India and against Russia, mm. but mainly the United States. So the whole, the whole premise of their military development over the last 30 years has been, how do we box out the seventh fleet and anybody else that the U.S. and its allies decide to throw into a theater-wide conflict against us? And what they have done, despite the large standing power, the PLA as a ground force is not anywhere near the capability of the United States Army, the United States Marine Corps, and SOCOM. They have numerical superiority, but we have both technological and training superiority. And if we couldn't figure it out on the ground, at the human level, at the civil affairs level, at the propaganda level, winning hearts, minds, information operations, and just simply being able to, you know, to control and occupy terrain, they're going to struggle with it worse than us, despite their numerical superiority. And I, and I firmly believe that the Russians were more analogous to the way in which the U S is structured than China is Yeah. as far as doctrine. And as far as the emphasis of, of their force construction their Afghanistan is more of a threat to them in some ways than the United States is. So I, I and, and but I think they understand that, right? However much they won't admit that, uh, there <laughs> you've got 
you've got the Hindu Kush mountains in the way of ground force occupation. You've got a very narrow corridor through Tajikistan that kind of gets them into the Wakhan Valley and allows them to get into Afghanistan. So their ability to project power is very limited without just saying, we're going to send bombers and, and missiles and make it rain hate on you. Mm-hmm. They know that's a limiting factor, but you, the other limiting factor for them is simply that the, 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 the concept of civil military fusion, the, the way in which China goes about things economically is inherently self-limiting in that part of the world. When you're talking about tribes and tribalism, when you're talking about relationships and connectivity that exists for hundreds or thousands of years, and it's a part mm-hmm. of the world that a great power can never understand. Yep. Right. Because a great power by definition is not tribal. We are many, many, many different tribes knit together by some higher order thinking. But tribalism is not higher order thinking. It's almost epigenetic. It's a thing that's just who we are. And in the same way, absolutely. Right. So in the same way that the Han mentality has taken control of China, but China is itself functionally 60 different ethnic groups. And demographics comprised under that that have just kind of been subjugated by the power. Afghanistan is a different beast in the same way, except it can't be tamed and it won't be tamed. And I think it's going to become a situation where Russia, in some ways, even in the Soviet Union, if you look at how they actually governed, they pretty much understood that. They made examples where they needed to make examples. But if you were in Kazakhstan, they kind of let you sort of be Kazakhstan culturally right but at some point well, they you just did, had they to did have the kazakhs uh, learn a russian language i think they, they did out, they outlawed but they their still had madrasas language. and everything they didn't like totally gut them the right. way they did with um the way the chinese did were destroying like buddhist temples in uh, various parts of indochina but, but here it gets that. a little bit tricky because uh, there was this movie i don't know if you guys ever watched i highly recommend it because uh, i think they have subtitles now uh Shurika. It's a uh, Russian uh, series, you know, old uh, Soviet uh, movie series, really, really good. But in one episode, Shurik, who is the main character, he goes to the uh, Caucasus. And uh, one of the first things that he does there with the locals is he drinks with them, alcohol. So you think that, oh my God, how are they getting away with that? Well, since the USSR went in there, they made alcohol uh, completely legal. And uh, that also changed, I think, a big framework. I wouldn't say that's to the extent of uh, you know doing what we were talking about uh, doing, but if we look at what exactly does it take to grab a hold of any kind of uh, tribalistic society, and I'm not saying that I advocate for this at all. I mean, personally, I would go full like Star Trek. Uh, what was their whole uh, you know when they visited Prime Directive? Plant- yes, I would go like full Star Trek Prime Directive whenever possible, especially for a place as mountainous and treacherous as Afghanistan. But that being said, let's say there's a scenario where we say, okay, like we want there to be you know uh, freedom for the women there, for example. I think the only way that something like that could ever be maintained is if we would have went in there, put in, um, you know, not even an American, like we could have put in somebody who was educated in the West who was from that region, somebody who was from Afghanistan, educated in the West, put them there as, let's say, a puppet dictator, then put out uh, these, uh, you know, head impaled spikes 
in the front of the headquarters and made a sign that says this is what happens to the thieves and the uh, so on and so forth. So you behave yourselves and everything's going to be fine. Then the women can walk with their dresses out in public and nothing happens to them. But I think only then. One other example I would bring up is my great uncle who was working, he was like a high official in the KGB, like he had a military position. I think he was also one of the people who went into Hungary. I could be getting the place wrong. I think it was Hungary when Hungary was attempting to do its uh, revolution against the USSR, and he uh, put a stop to that. But anyway, he was on a trip to Libya, and he brought back some photos to show my mom. And one of the photos that he showed was he was in a market and there was a guy who was hanging, you know, in the market uh, for uh, for robbery. And I truly believe that there are people who are, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a biological thing. I think it is an well, it's like an epigenetic thing that gets passed down where people are used to a certain kind of justice and they see anything below that justice to be a sign of weakness And uh, that's why I think the only way we can possibly maintain those kind of freedoms in the long term is to just like go full Imperium mode in that place and install somebody who would be hard but uh, fair. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Huntsman, Geo, Prudentialist? Maybe Prudentialist first this time. I mean, we keep in mind that Ashraf Ghani was educated both in the American University of Beirut and Columbia. Not to say that he was as hard as that you would want to be there, Lev, but it is something that has been tried. Uh, (laughs) But what's funny is that Eugene Thacker is the head of, I think he was the head of philosophy at Beirut University. He's like the top nihilist writer in the world. So I I just find that funny in Lebanon. He's like the top nihilist, right? Uh, yeah, but sorry, no, to just... bounce off your point there, Gio, when you were talking about like legitimacy and power, mm-hmm. I think you, I, I think this is where I'm uh, to bring up um, Samuel P. Huntington and the Clash of Civilizations. Like, I don't think you can really go in there looking at this through a Western lens of, say, the Westphalian state model, mm-hmm. or here's how governance can work. How, what's the unifying narrative? Because you can't have a top order, you know, system of how we look at things. Like uh, Huntsman was saying. Um, in a nation that has got, you know, a variety of different ethnic groups, um, even though the Pashtuns are the highest in Afghanistan, it doesn't help that they also committed like an ethnic cleansing of the Hazara people back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. what, the, the question, I think you, you can't look at it at legitimacy. I think you have to look at it maybe in a more old fashioned sense of just who has that animating will or that animating will to power to actually rule right yeah. now for lack of a you know if you want to in, in a somber way you can say for right now it's the taliban and even before like in the last 90 days the taliban had their you know spokespeople they were meeting with the chinese they were meeting with the russians they were meeting with um pakistan they were they meeting were, with an anon from spain unfortunately uh, maybe right um and they but did you hear just, about that that the uh, guy negotiated the spanish ha- the people uh, to get out of there i'm pretty <laughs> sure a groiper that, negotiated with a taliban member i don't know how accurate the story is i, I won't comment i've heard that it might have been <laughs> fake but oh, um uh, i i i just think at that point you know who's got the the ruling power to do so and right now the taliban even if I mean, you can, I don't know how legitimate you can even call them, considering that they're going to be heavily reliant upon uh, the other powers in there. I mean, they have already made statements that they invite the Chinese to invest, that they're not interested in China's internal affairs with the Uyghur Muslims. Um, and of course... Oh, the, oh, oh, 
Well, well, they yeah, they said that they're not interested in in China's domestic disputes. They made that very clear. They want that investment. They want that money. Whether or not the Taliban can maintain themselves independent, not be a client state, becomes a whole other bag of uh, can of worms to open. But I would say that for everything that's going on right now, I, I agree with Huntsman that China has been more primarily focused on countering the Seventh Fleet, the United States. That's why a lot of their efforts have been focused on stopping American freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. It's been harassing shipping with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And of course, the political infiltration of the United States with, say, Confucius centers to get technology, um, infiltration of political influence across the world. We see this with having a uh, legally black Chinese woman in South Africa being a member of parliament. We're seeing a lot more Chinese influence in um, Australia and New Zealand. So yeah, I, there's they're more focused outward than they were there. If they were to, if you were to ask your hypothetical again, what happens if they build something and you know the Taliban say they got a raw deal? The exact same thing would happen that I would expect that happened in Pakistan about a month ago, where there was a bombing under unknown circumstances, and eight Chinese me- uh, mechanical engineers were killed. And mm. you have both Pakistan and China pointing fingers at each other and pointing at terrorist groups. So no one's really too for sure, and I don't think we'll ever know to be honest. Mm. So I to just sort of wrap up my thoughts here, I think that we can't look at it through a Western lens. We have to understand that there are civilizational, epigenetic, tribal, and cultural differences. And that for right now, I think that um, the only way I can play devil's advocate for the Chinese having a modicum of success is that they've watched the United States conduct counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 20 years, and they kind of know what works and what doesn't. But even then, that's giving a lot of credit there. But what, oh, pr- why? Oh wait, oh wait, Prudentialist, real quick, uh, you were mentioning that the uh, model I was talking about uh, would not be a resilient one, and I am uh, curious... about the like installing a dictator one. Yes, so I, I am curious, like, because there were, I mean, look at uh, Saddam Hussein; he was a dictator, and Iraq seemed to be going pretty. I mean, I wouldn't say pretty oh. well, but it was much more stable than it was uh, otherwise. Well, my, I think the issue is, of course, like you have, if you're going to do it right, you can, you have to make sure in some form or fashion that there's no way that you can tie them back to the West. I think that America's got a pretty long history, whether it's our interventions in the early 20th century in South America, our attempts to overrule elections in the 60s and 70s across the, you know, in South America, Africa, and Asia. I mean, we, I think that there's just a very long and sordid history to say to the United States that if we're going to install some guy, you need to make sure that he has the full, you know, his his allegiance first and foremost is to his people and to his his country, to his tribe. I don't think you want him to have a lot of ties to the West, because when you do that, you automatically sort of instill that. Okay, he's he's a part of the out group. He is a, uh, you know, an American puppet. And. I, that, that would be my thing. In the Middle East, what is the lesson that I think we've learned from Libya to Iraq to Afghanistan? Having a sort of, you know, a sectarian or a secular kind of strong man in charge works best. I would agree with that. Absolutely. I just think that um, if you're going to install somebody, you got to really make sure that he's not, you know, you're, the people in that country don't see him as like, you know, Yankee imperialism or a puppet like that. That's why I'm skeptical. That's and, all. And, and just to be clear, once again, I am not in support of this for a place like Afghanistan. There are places, though, that I would say have occurred throughout history, uh, recent history, especially where if we were to have, let's say, 
a uh, presence there that would dissuade, you know, it would have dissuaded, and it did dissuade back then the USSR from creeping in, you know, because I do believe in the domino theory. I think the USSR definitely tried to acquire a lot of territory as, uh, as well. Yes, uh, no, no, yes, they did. But anyway, the, the point that I'm... The <laughs> so the point, response is we just require, we acquired them through supporting yeah, brutal dictatorships. Yes, that was but, the response. Yes, that is the response. That's, but again, Gio, you were supporting Britain uh, having India in the 50s. So, well, uh, so don't, well don't, it didn't help that the American talking. foreign policy of like the 19, late 40s, 50s, and 60s was vibrantly anti-colonialist exactly. to weaken our European allies. Even supporting yeah. the Viet Minh. Yeah, but my last point, but my last point here is what I think we did uh, wrong in Iraq. Let's say is we got like a person from what I understand from one tribe who was against people from other tribes. So maybe this would have worked where it's not a matter of installing. And I'm not talking about Afghanistan. I'm just talking about in general. Okay. If 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 we ever do that in the future, if the the U.S. ever does it in the future, then maybe it would make sense. I could be wrong about this, but being like a I don't know, maybe not being upfront about what it is, but kind of like Alexander the Great, you know, he had a, a big presence in the, you know, a big portion of the world. He was spreading Hellenism and he kind of, uh, he, he kind of accepted, he kind of uh, accepted the fact that, yes, I'm going in here, I'm going to run shit from now on, but it's going to be good. If anybody does so-and-so, you're going to get punished. And uh, I don't know, it just seems like being upfront and honest may work, yeah, maybe but Lev, it wouldn't. What, why, why are we viewing it? I know this is a controversial opinion, but like, like the whole propaganda around the the leaving of Afghanistan and how the one image of the fucking fashion Hollywood posters being taken down the erasure of women. Like what if they like, what if they want to live that way? Like, you know what I mean? Like what if their, but, the, but this is their why ancestral I... religion yes. and their way of life dictates that they like the Taliban. A lot of them were greeted as liberators in certain parts of Afghanistan. But Gio, it's not this like, is exactly you know what I mean? I say, like this is, I know. Well, this is exactly why I, I say know. no, but Gio, this is well, exactly why I say that I am not in favor of this happening with Afghanistan for the reasons you stated personally. But I would say that if there are other regions out there that, let's say, if we weren't there, then China would be able to encroach upon those regions. And it is a matter of, OK, let's say we don't let's say our presence is not there. Right. Our presence is not there. What happens next? But if things are what... more complicated because it, it wasn't like in the Soviet Union where there was a delineation between this is a civilization that's radically different than ours and this is america and this is well not just america but i think with china, uh, china like there's an ambiguity China's, whether there are i think it's pretty different i think it's pretty okay different. they kind of are maybe tacitly our enemies but there's still an ambiguity because we live in a world that's so interlinked i mean hmm. with chinese manufacturing well, and economics and so forth it's just it's not like the soviet union lived a completely different isolated iron curtain which I kind of bullshit some people say, but it wasn't like you knew the distinction. With China, you really don't know. I mean, let's face it, they probably do want to fuck us over. Well, as I someone who lives in Canada, Huntsman. I know this, but it's I wanna, not as... I want to I wanna ask I Huntsman know. about the distinction uh, between the U.S. and China. That is actually a really good point you brought up, Gio. But before that, I just want to say regarding that uh, imperialist position that I was holding earlier, the one caveat I would add there is that I don't want there to be like some brutal dictator to step up. What I would rather have in situations like that is 
a Marshall Plan, something that we ended up doing for uh, uh, South Korea, let's say, where we actually did care about investing into certain places. Yes, we invested into those places so that the USSR wouldn't start creeping in there, but it's still a better model than just saying, you know, like, F those people, like, uh, we're just going to take over, use it as an extraction economy. So it's kind of like a combination of what Huntsman was talking about earlier, while at the same time still having it be a bit of a uh, defensive uh, area so that there wouldn't be creep coming from uh, other uh, bigger uh, countries. But anyway, Huntsman, can you please talk about the difference that you see between China and America when it comes to, I guess, values, the way uh, the way the leadership is set up, the way people live? Because I don't know that much about the place. And I hear praise coming from certain people talking about Xi Jinping being this, uh, you know, noble... Uh, statement no of the century. Yeah, statement of the century, exactly. And how the <laughs> Chinese model is one where they actually uh, care about their people and they're willing to do certain things for the betterment of their people. And I don't know... Huntsman like limiting video game times. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty that's based. That's uh... pretty based. <laughs> they got rid of, ho ho they got rid of uh, wokeness in Hollywood films, Lev. That's amazing. Well, yeah, as, as, a, as a dad with as a dad with four kids, all of whom to one extent or another, uh, pretty routinely uh, harp on me about dad, I want to play this game, dad, I want to play that game. Um, uh, you know, there's there's like some part of me that's like, uh, I agree with the dictatorial impulse to limit video game time. Um, but what I what I think fundamentally we have is between China and the United States is if we walk it all the way back to from a very first principle standpoint, the way in which Xi Jinping, but, but communism in general uh, is at odds with the foundational ethos upon which most Americans broadly recognize Americanism, right? To the extent that we're, we're born and raised with, if you want to call it propaganda, if you want to call it education, probably somewhere in the middle uh, of uh, our constitution, the, the pledge of allegiance that I think to my knowledge, most, you know, or at least I said it growing up, but I'm 37 years old. The world's changed a little bit, but we are indoctrinated to some extent with the value of natural rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And that is uh, an extremely Westernized notion that arises from the Abrahamic religions, in particular Christianity and, and the Catholic traditions that emerged, uh, you know, post-Jesus when, when the church kind of began to organize into the Roman Empire. So you had August, you know, St. Augustine, but then you also had later than that, you know, you had Locke in particular who talked about life, liberty, and property. And from that, then we had Burke and some of the others, Hayek. And so that, that, Broadly, Americans subscribe to that. And China is not that. It does not, the, the, the ethos upon which the CCP uh, builds its legitimacy, you know, Mao Zedong said it. He said, power grows from the barrel of a gun. And that is a pure, it, it's a distillation to some extent of Sun Tzu, but it's also uh, very much at odds with other ideologies, which is that we are going to co-opt you or we're going to compel you. But one way or another, power will prevail. And the U.S., to the extent that we have largely lost our way from our, you know, what we may consider our founding values, um, to the extent that we have 
wandered from that. We are still at odds with this ideology that pure power is all. And if you are, you are with us or you are against us. And I can, and I can see the disagreement, Gio, and I, and I get that. Uh, right? I don't know. <laughs> According so, to Logo, um, the Chinese are the perfect American Republicans because their philosophers learned from the letters of Abe Lincoln, and they're actually the real American uh, Republic. I don't, fuck, I know. Logo and I would, Logo and I should probably pound half a bottle of bourbon each, and then like really get out into the weeds of this. Oh, <laughs> but there, but there is a real dialectic there, right? And mm. and but certainly when you when you look at how we apply and implement policy from an economic and from a military standpoint, we do kind of generally broadly follow those things where America is going to take a commercial uh, or at least we're going to try to pretend that this is for the benefit of people, right? We still Mm -hmm. kind of give lip service to that. Mm -hmm. That's why we talk about like, Oh, look at all the advancement of, you know, women's rights, you know, during the 20 years, the United States was, was more or less an occupying force in Afghanistan either directly or by proxy. Um, we're going to pretend that those were the things that we were really after. They weren't. We were after cold-blooded, pragmatic things, same as China is now as they move in, same as the Soviet Union before us and our involvement there. But at least we do try to pay lip service to that mm. I and mean, to some extent recognize that those are our values. And, 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 and both of those things, by the way, they are done under the barrel of a gun, both the women's yes. rights and the... Uh... So ultimately, Abs- it comes down to absolutely. that. Absolutely, I, I but love it, how um yeah. the the gender studies program in Afghanistan fell. It almost reminds me of like how Western, particularly feminist theory cells, they uh will take like symbolic acts of like it's almost pathetic in a way. It's it reminds me of having having a gender studies program in Afghanistan. It kind of reminds me of like Susan Sontag going to fucking Sarajevo and putting on a play. I forget what play it was. I think it was the vagina monologue or something like that. It's just, it reminds me of that, like Westernized, like here's like the conflict, but through our symbolic act, we can transcend the, the brutal Mm. oppression of women in this particular conflict. It's so fucking crazy. By the way, Minotaur asks Uh, you, Gio, what are you listening to today? Oh, I was listening. I'm listening to uh, Roots by Sepultura. Uh, I was listening to PCA Studio set, but I'm I'm decided there to go. There we go. But it's an interesting thing. PCSS, and by the way, guys, send us the super chats as well. But I am going to read this over here. So PCSS says the Chinese are just more honest and direct about it. It's all smokes and mirrors here, mock human rights, etc. Okay, see, this is the big disagreement that I have with people in the chat because they assume that just because a place happens to be more honest about certain things that it has, like, what's the conclusion? Okay, so it's like the quality of life that people are going to have there versus here, despite all the problems that we have there. It's like, it's worth uh, kind of, uh, you know, thinking a little bit of head here. Like if you were to live, like you huntsman, if you were to live in China or your kids were to live in China for generations upon generations of this particular regime, assuming it exists for generations upon generations which i also mm-hmm. doubt but assuming that that is the case what would be what would be certain things that would have to be given up or what are certain potential directions that a top-down regime like xi jinping's china would go in that would uh, affect your uh, your next of kin you know your kids were they to live there 
this would have been a hell of a question for balding if he was here. Um, oh, as I be sure, I'm gonna ask him. I'm gonna ask <laughs> you him. better. You better ask him. I'll text him and be like, dude, you seriously need to answer this question. It's really important. But um, so I I freely and openly admit that I am a child of Enlightenment values, right? Like, grandpa was military. Great grandpa was military. Oh, geotyping. Dad, dad was military. Um, you know, and, 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 and I grew up sort of my mother's milk was founding father's documents, constitution, liberty, all of these sorts of things. Right. And I, and I freely and openly admit that. And so I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my, 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 my mental model, the way in which I view the world is completely different from someone who grows up in a, uh, under a regime such as maybe the Soviets uh, or now the CCP or to a, a really extreme scenario, North Korea, um, where th- they, you know, I, I, to the extent that Yomi Park is, you know, uh, like maybe an honest arbiter of what we can understand for what happened in North Korea, that's a very alarming sort of account of they don't have words for certain things that we recognize as core values, like love, for example, right? Like, mm. the, but the North, although, although to be fair, uh, at least on Tim <laughs> Dillon's podcast, he talked about how certain things that she said may have uh, been, been like propagandized. How, well, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I've never, I've never gone in publicly on my feelings or thoughts uh, on that whole thing, but uh, I, it, it feels like a massaged message to me is probably the extent to which I've thought about it, like really on an intellectual level before I'm willing to take a public stance. But it, it, should that be true, I, at least directionally, it does sound fairly accurate for what we yeah. know about how authoritarian repressive regimes have worked historically. Right. Definitely. Um, you, you limit people's ability to communicate certain emotions or certain states of mind, then you, you limit their worldview in which they can, they can communicate those things. So um, to some extent, yeah, I understand that. Right. So I understand that someone who has grown up um, and, and, and comes out of now, the 1940s was really when the CCP got control and, and has had an unbroken span of control over the mindsets of the population. To one extent, the most dangerous thing they ever did was they allowed some sort of Westernization into the, the, the Chinese culture from what we would consider the Chinese culture of say the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, it was the it was the lasso by which they were able to weaponize the West against itself, but at the same time, it also has provided a taste of freedom that authoritarianism struggles to reconcile. And I think they are going to have to have some sort of generational reckoning to that at some point. The United States, we have been a very free and open country for a long, long time, and now we have our own battles to fight with. Have <laughs> Have we come to a point where freedom of human expression has reached its sort of natural end in just like rampant degeneracy, right? So we have we have these two competing extremes we're reaching at the same time for our own models, where I think we end up landing is some sort of slow motion collapse of both models, but where I believe the the U.S. will reassert itself if not primacy, 
if not hegemony, if not the global standard by which we should all uh, aspire, right? Where I think we will end up, though, I think is long-term in the healthiest place coming out of, if you, if you subscribe to the, you know, Strauss-Howe generational theory, theory of turnings and all of that, if we can avoid the impulse towards authoritarianism, towards let's let the strong man tell us what to do for a while. If we can avoid that impulse, if we can just say, look, here's the deal. By and large, this is still the freest and best place in the world to live. By and large, we still have the most abundant natural resources. By and large, we still have a culture that is rooted in some sort of quasi-Judeo-Christian ethos that, that subscribes to both higher power, individual liberty. If we can dive back into those, we find ourselves, I think, in a better position than China finds itself in 20 or 30 years where they have this sort of generational abyss that's on the other side of authoritarianism, which is a people that have been forced to forget their cultural roots, which are a healthy and good thing, forced to forget their tribal roots. They're divorced from any sort of first principle or anchor outside of power of the state. And that's where I think if we look a hundred years into the future, I, I truly believe that the U S Russia, India, countries that maintain an extremely strong nationalist and cultural identity, however robust and dynamic and diverse it may be, will do better than pure authoritarianism that's just rooted in the absolute binary trade-off of power and money. Mm. I would say Russia is in the latter. No. But, no, yes. They, they're definitely more connected to their roots than we are. I'm not Russian. I, I, so. I can't speak to that quite to the same extent, Lev. Maybe you can, but... And by the uh, way, for those who don't... Uh, Oh, sorry, Huntsman. You know. No, go ahead. No, for those who doubt me, um, so this is an article rated for Europe. Susan Sontag, during the siege of Bosnia, went to um, Sarajevo to put on a play with local actors uh, waiting for Gadet, which is the Samuel Beckett play, the most fucking theory cell existentialist play you can imagine, as symbolic of how um, the 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 Bosnian women are waiting for the power, the mysterious power of the West to take action. Like, like, can you, so meanwhile, people are getting fucking killed in the streets. You have Susan Sontag putting on a play, waiting for mm. Gadet. But to, like, uh, can you imagine if like fucking, oh, um, who, who, who would be the equivalent now? Imagine if like, uh, I'm trying to think who would be the equivalent. Imagine if like, um, I don't know. Anna Kasparian goes to uh, Afghanistan, goes to Kabul, and puts on a play, um, the whatever. Right? Like that would be amazing. That we should do this, you know, while yeah. people to protest well, for the women or, in Afghanistan. Or if she goes to uh, Armenia and uh, <laughs> oh! okay, no, but no, but yeah. getting back to what we were talking about before, Geo, when it comes to authoritarianism in general what Huntsman was talking about right now was, from what I understand, uh, countries going back to their roots as far as uh, the culture of liberty, but also, I guess I should say, what is Americana? You know, it's not just liberty, it's also generosity. It's also looking out for one's neighbor and uh, treating one's neighbor as you would prefer to be treated yourself. I think a lot of these things talk about the uh, American spirit, but when we are also talking about authoritarianism, it seems like to go back to Afghanistan, uh, what we were talking about in the very beginning here, that this uh, spirit of, let's say, hardness, toughness, 
that uh, people on the more reactionary side of Twitter see in the uh, uh, Taliban people. I'm curious, like, uh, Geo, like, you personally wouldn't necessarily mind there to be an authoritarian regime that would take over, you know, because you don't like liberalism. So if you don't like liberalism, like well, you would those prefer... are the only two options, Lev. I mean, that's no. But I am curious, like what exactly, <laughs> what exactly would you prefer there? Because this is a question for the prudentialist. I feel. Well, I want to get your me, take. Like, I don't yeah, know. I, I feel like a lot of things would have to happen before we arrive at post-liberalism. I, I just think that it's no. But you you throw the word around post-liberalism, but let's define it. What what, what do you mean? Well, it's it's like postmodernism. Can you really define it? I'm, I mean. But then we if, don't know what we're talking about. No, be, okay. So really, I, I guess you could say um, a, regi a regime that would be outside of the confines of certain liberal assumptions about the nature of not just governance, but the nature of human embodiment itself. So that would be the assumptions that we presuppose as a given, as an image of thought about how things like democracy and so forth, how they manifest themselves it's 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 almost like it's impossible to imagine right now because it's literally the air we breathe is liberalism but i think that i think th that's why there's this weird sort of a, a, a exoticism attached to a lot of different regimes whether i mean the taliban is different i mean and now that it's crossing political boundaries and at least in the west because before i remember like during the early to mid to 2010s you had like a lot of you had like a lot of like anti-imperialist like left-wing anarchities that would like you know wear the uh what's that called the palestinian thing the the scarf you know um what's it called lev uh the, wait the uh, hijab no the scarf like the 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 black and white the palestinian thing oh the i don't I... The, yeah yeah the schmog yeah they schmog. Would, yeah they would wear the th the thing and they would like read about the analects of Hezbollah and they would uh, have this very like anti-imperialist view of like, you know, the Anglo empire, which, you know, fine. Right. But now we see like a right wing version of that particular Middle Eastern third worldism with like, I don't know how serious or genuine it is like the meme culture, but I do find that it's as things crumble in our own sort of, our own sort of epistemological view of how we even function as a society, how we even gain knowledge of what it means to live in this particular time period as Americans or whatever, or Europeans. No, but, but look, okay. It's like we embrace the other as this like new territory of reaction or of revolution, which has its plus or negatives. I don't, I don't particularly frown upon it, but I do think that there's, a lot of interesting reasons. I mean, this is an old thing. I mean, this is like Benjamin Barber, uh, Jihad versus McWorld, right? Like this, we've been talking about this, but now, but he was talking about a particular left-wing embrace of that. But now it's like to, to upend the assumptions of the regime from the neocons onwards, I think is that is the spirit in the air, at least in the political right, maybe in the certain parts of the political right. So then left. you support uh, Rand Paul. You support like a well, more no, libertarian. The fact that Rand Paul is like going out, like the fact that he's given new light, new, uh, sorry, new public life as someone who is very much against the neocons and the neoliberals. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's still a goofy libertarian, but it's very interesting in that. In that no, regard. but what, okay, let, let's say like this. What would be the closest uh, regime you can name 
to what you want to see. I don't. I can't in, say in that States. because my because <laughs> as it is said, the kingdom of God is not of this world. So I couldn't answer that. I would say. Like no, existing currently right now, excluding the kingdom of God, what regime would you say would come close to what you would want to see implemented in the United States of America and Canada? We can't forget Canada. Oh God, I, it, that's a difficult question because then if you put Canada in there, I mean, okay, let's not put Canada in there. I'm just doing you a favor in by putting North Canada America. in there. Yes, fine, yeah. Um, I don't know. Because I don't want you to be left out of it. Gilead. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm only half kidding. Um, I, I don't know. I would think uh, maybe the Roman Republic. That could be like okay, Caesar just, Augustus. Okay, that but could you see a, like a good. My my problem there is that Caesar Augustus like, like lived pre-expansionist per- Roman Empire. Pre-expansionist okay. Roman Empire. But like today, that would be considered to be, you know, what would be the big difference between, the, uh, you know, Augustus and I don't know. Oh, oh, you'd have Stalin, men, right? Stalin or uh, Hitler or anybody like that. Like, oh, there if, are if things people... were the way it is now, you'd have Jeff Bezos running things. No, but I'm which not is talking not about that. I'm not talking know. about. Pe- I'm not talking about the technocrats. I'm basically saying, Geo, like we throw around a lot of very interesting concepts of. Uh, you know, uh, philosophy, but when we get down to the nitty gritty, what exactly do you want? You know, like, cause if you're talking about Roman empire, that's, it, it, that doesn't exist anymore. There was this particular time when that existed. No, but so Lev, I'm talking be... about a, a regime. You mentioned a model of a regime. Yeah. But in the and modern sense, wouldn't that be an authoritarian regime in the modern sense? Like if we're being well, anything that, but that's the problem is the definition that you've set. Like that is the problem. So, so it wouldn't be that different from China. That's basically what we're saying. Well, maybe I don't know. Uh, okay, I we'll see. That's the, that, the that's problem. Is the definition kind of, of liberalism about, yeah. itself is countered that anything outside of its corpus is by definition authoritarian. Well, right? let's like give, what let's does that even substantially of, uh, mean? Let's give a little bit of room to that. So, uh, Prudentialist, do you want to step oh, in here oh, right and now? The, okay, Prudentialist, <laughs> Prudentialist first. What no, your... no, let Huntsman yeah. on. I'm still thinking about this. Are, are oh, fuck. So, are, okay, so... Oh, Hun- <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> okay, so Huntsman... Uh, well, I'm come on, you're the Edmund Burke stand. Come on, help me here. I'm the Edmund on, Burke bro. stand because I like the idea of inherited rights. Burke gets well, a lot of things wrong, but we can get into that later. I think their rights don't exist, but that's man has duties. No, see, see, there we go. Mm -hmm. Like you could say that rights don't exist, but what exact political system you'd be in favor of implementing if it doesn't seem that different from China? Like, I don't know, like Huntsman, I'm trying to figure out here, like, what would be what would be your response to that? When it comes to advocating for this more like Roman Empire ish, I thought we were talking about Afghanistan, bro. It, no, it relates yeah. wholeheartedly. It relates wholeheartedly because the passion that people feel for the the, uh, the, the pre modern conception of rights yeah. was more of an. There were certain okay, there were certain dignities to the human being that was given to us by our Creator, but in terms of the way that we codify quote-unquote human rights and how they're infinitely expanding that's obviously like an illusion or a specter the the roman republic all the way up until the byzantine empire all the way up until the phoenician city-states up until any sort of arrangement before the modern era they had a very different model of what they considered as dignities or responsibilities or duties of their citizenry 
under for example under medieval serfdom it was very different than our conception of like these rights are a thing that is like downloaded into you by the global brain and we don't know where they yeah. come from it's just like you know to, and, to, give, your, probably... to give your daughter hrt is apparently a yeah. human right now well no so and that's... they probably like those models you're talking about geo they probably would have worked very good and would have been the very best models at that well, even time. the american republic the, their conception of human rights were t completely different than well sure yeah. at that time but my problem here geo is that it doesn't even let me put it like this the reason why i have a problem with uh, bringing up uh, the roman empire for example uh is that we live in a time where technology makes us extremely interconnected and i think it was this technological innovation and the interconnectedness that wow. led to the bloodbaths of world war one world war two all the horrors that we saw in the modern age of machinery which is why i cannot just go back in time to the roman empire and say let's put that in place of whatever you have right now this is why i really want to be realistic here and say what would your model look like keeping in mind you know not having us be bombed all the way to the bronze age keeping in mind that we still retain the technology that we have to today what would that model look like well the problem the problem is that the technology itself brings with it a, a number of some like i i believe that technology i believe very much like jacques Alul that technology is not a neutral thing it's something that brings with it certain discourses and certain modes of thinking that are very difficult to overcome so apart from like some butlerian jihad where we like smash the robots or some shit i think that um the t question of technology is always going to be contentious. I don't believe in some kind of like Georgianian Promethean fucking transhuman like Jigachad nonsense. I think that things are much more difficult than that. I think that when it comes, you, you would have to have some degree of regulation. You would have to have some kind of style of like censorship in order for it to work, even order for even people to not become wireheads. Like, I think maybe China knows that. I mean, not to say that I'm a big fan of China, obviously, but I think that they somewhat know that you can't have a whole civilization of fucking wireheads that are going to play slice of life anime video games all day and they're going to pretend yeah. that their fucking tentacle waifu is, uh, or their xeno alien waifu is going to give them uh, treats and pokey, pocky and. Uh, the VR headset. And Pokey, <laughs> Pokey Main. They're gonna have like a little Pokey No, is it? What's the stick that you eat? The, the that they sell it's at Pocky. No, Pocky, but I'm, yeah, no, yeah, but I'm yeah. using a I'm, oh, I'm using a pun. This is a pun geo where I'm talking about having Pokey Main, the streamer. Oh yeah, having, there like, you go. Little Pokey Mains that you could buy that you could just like eat. You know, it's it'll like, be no, like that movie. Don't with... eat me! Don't eat me! It's like nom 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 nom. That nom, movie antiviral with Cronenberg's son. Where you yeah. get to like eat a piece of celebrities? Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> exactly. No, you get but to I'm eat. Only, I'm only... You get to f eat AOC's feet like oh, pig God. shoes. Oh God! Oh God! Geo, don't <laughs> do that Ben Shapiro any ideas, don't just start please? That oh, no. don't! You get to right, eat Ben Shapiro's G schmeckla. G okay. Geo just Back broke the business model of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Genetic engineering, yeah. All right, Sims back will to, never recover. Right, back to uh, back to back to Huntsman. So, Geo, the reason why I did this, I wasn't picking on you. The reason why I did this actually is the opposite. I wanted you to present the very best model to counteract the, let's say, more liberty-minded model that Huntsman was bringing up in relation to technology, in relation to the future. So, Huntsman, I am curious. Like, does Geo have a point here when it comes to what may be? on the horizon when it comes to a lot of technological innovations, how a lot of this can be handled. Uh, go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're asking me to get into 
We don't even have no. We don't even have to get into like the sci-fi stuff. We can get no, into no, no, whatever not, we not have right now. Like not, not at all. I mean, I, uh, I think l- let's let's look at what let's set a twenty-four month horizon. Sure. Right. Sure. Uh, of what probably is to come. I think Geo's right that that there is an extremely strong emergent strain of thought, and particularly, um, you know, Dugan is one who informs it quite a bit. Uh, if you want to go back further, you're talking about guys like Evola, who, you know, also inform that. Now, Evola went the direction of fascism. Uh, very much a foundational thinker as far as a lot of the ideas that you saw coming out of the Axis powers. Uh, at least two of the three. Um, but you, I think those were the extremes, right? But as far as w- what we can condense the thought processes of these guys into what we recognize today as some sort of animating political philosophy, you're probably best to call it traditionalism. Mm. Um, it's something that I think Steve Bannon broadly subscribes to. I think that Trump in some ways was probably a prototype for that model. Uh, which is, uh, I don't want to call it authoritarian, but certainly strongman-ish tendencies where where moral duties and values and ethics come into conflict with the way in which a, a open system has been weaponized against itself. You want to see the moral duties and ethics and values prevail. And you can only do that, at, at, if not the barrel of a gun, certainly with some level of coercive capability of, uh, of a strongman leader. And I think that's what broadly we're seeing the new right, as we understand it, maybe move towards at least at least the part that's been you know influenced by Bannon and and others. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I am saying that is a divergence from what we certainly understand as maybe a westernized value, those enlightenment values of natural rights, where if you don't have to earn your right as a citizen, you at least damn well better be sure that you are aware of the ways in which your uh, the ways in which your behaviors and your moral code either is both circumscribed, but also informed by and directed towards the benefit of all under that particular moral frame. You're going to see, I think a lot of people take the libertarian bent, which is probably more Burkean, probably more, from an economic standpoint aligned with Friedman and Hayek and some of the others of the Austrian school or what we would now recognize as the Chicago school uh, in its modern form, which is that I don't really give a shit about your morals and your ethics and your values. To what extent am I allowed to do the things I want to do? And what does that impact look like? And if I don't harm anybody else, we can do those things. And I think you're going to see probably more a nationalistic authoritarian approach to things, which we would recognize as China. Certainly China has taken a very hard turn in the last six months in that direction under Xi Jinping, where we look at what they've done to Jack Ma, we look at what they've done to numerous others and saying, is your behavior economically or militarily in alignment with the best interests of the government? And I think those are the three, if we kind of say, what are the broad paradigms that that individuals are going to begin to subscribe to over the next 20 to 30 years it's probably one of those three more or less and within the west certainly within the u.s the dialectic is really going to be between the the traditionalist model of do we subscribe to moral duties and ethics and values 
as the way in which we, we govern ourselves under the Constitution? Or do we say that humans are enabled to do whatever they want, to whatever extent they want, irregardless? That's not even a word. Regardless. I think that irregardless is one of those words <laughs> yeah. that drives people nuts. But regardless of morals and ethics, I think we will see a binary frame begin to emerge. And then within those, we're going to have the debate over the utopian value of is man perfectible via technology and process and procedure and social construct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Or are we just animals, which I think is probably more the neo-reactionary sort of dialectic. And well, within the online rate, that is even another divide mm-hmm. between traditionalists and like the NRX. Yeah. I mean, well, are are, are we animals or are we fallen gods? But, uh... but, but what also happened with politi- <laughs> But also what happened to the political left huntsmen? Like, I, I'm assuming they're just going to align with power and like current the current regime, the neoliberal. I think so. Order. I think so. I, because I think that the current political left, what you may call like the woke left, is really just an, an evolution of Marxist dialectic, which is that whatever the, whatever the most um, whatever the most emergent and direct path to power is. How can, how can we maximize that and achieve that? And I think if you walk all the way back to the first principle of it, it's the, the value system of, I think that the world is, is a certain way. I think it should be a certain way. And the way in which to reconcile those two is just to simply force them together and then begin to call anybody that doesn't fit into that. Mm. And I think from a eugenic standpoint, from a, um, philosophical eugenics which is a different thing right than physical eugenics but how do we perfect human being through force how do we perfect society through force and whatever does not subscribe to that or whatever does not fit within that box is dispensable and at at some fundamental level that is at war with what we would generally consider however we and under a judeo-christian or an enlightenment value system derive the fact that human beings have some sort of natural dignity and right to life, the extent to which we are citizens or not is determined by our behavior. However, we subscribe to that. Those are fundamentally the two ethos that I think are at war with each other in the West. Certainly is, is it power that makes us better people? Um, is it technological perfection and enforced technological perfection? However, we arrive at that is it power that makes us better people or is it choice? and the willingness to try to do what's in the better interests of our nature. And, and if we, if we pull all the way back, I think that's probably the debate we have to have in the West before we can even begin to resolve what the hell is going on in central Asia or anywhere else, as far as how it influences the next say 50 years of nation state policy. That was really well said. I want to go to Prudentialist, but a one quick thing I wanted to run through here is Let's say if there was more of a uh, authoritarian state, let's say like with uh, China, Xi Jinping, let's say you have somebody who is absolutely brilliant at what they do, some kind of a uh, l- right out of Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of uh, anime or if you've watched that anime, but that's supposed to be like the archetypical, you know, beautiful, uh, long-haired, blonde leader who's really good at everything that he does. But assuming that that was the case... Like Griffith. Was- yeah, like Griffith, exactly. Assuming that that, that is the case, and R.I.P., uh, assuming that is the case with <laughs> Xi Jinping, what concerns me is that any kind of uh, dictator 
will eventually want to still be in power. It's very rare you get somebody like a George Washington who rescinds power. I mean, the very fact that, uh, from what I understand, Xi Jinping got rid of term limits to me indicates that he wants to remain in power. And so eventually, would it not be very, um, uh, very uh, likely that he would start surrounding himself by more sycophants brown nosers mm -hmm. people who are not necessarily you... smart people who would just do whatever they uh need to do to please him and as a result that's going to affect policy that's going to affect a bunch of other things and anybody smart would be seen as competition and a threat so you know do just you like want a time solid. capsule lev just that huntsman mentioned uh uh i was going through my old school notes and this was when i was teeing a um like a geopolitics class my professor would hand out these packets of news articles and he used to like piss off the printing room all the time uh and he he was very famous sovietologist in canada his name was juris dreifeld and he was like they wanted to can him for um well anyways um <laughs> he he uh this packet this is in 2016 this was the beginning of it let me just fucking do it here so this article is from Foreign Affairs. Look at that right off the bat. The the title, um, a prominent Russian ultranationalist philosopher. Fucking, oh my God, BBC War. This is from Foreign Affairs. Let me read you a little bit from it. Um, <laughs> since the collapse of the Soviet Union, oh, my fucking hair is a mess. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has searched fruitfully for a new grand strategy, something to define what Russia is, where Russians are and where they're going in Russia, totalitarianism, pedestroika, and finally a democratic path of development, blah, blah, blah. In the sense, Eurasianists like Duke and consider uh, Peter the Great, who tried to Europeanize Russia in the 18th century, an enemy and a traitor. Instead, they look to, with favor, to the Tartar-Mongol rule from the Golden Horde between the 13th and 15th century when Genghis Khan Empire had taught the Russians crucial lessons like building a strong centralized state. And then there's this other article from, I believe, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this is a whole, like, Eurasian series because he was, he was a Sovietologist. Um... How a Russian fascist is meddling in the American election by the oh, the International New York Times. Mm. President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, described the collapse of the Union as a geopolitical catastrophe, problem of Russian fascism. Ivan Illin, the brilliant political philosopher, has been dead for more than 60 years, but his ideas have found new life in post-Soviet Union. Uh, then I think it mentions Dugan, how like they were trying to do this thing where like Dugan was sending people to help Trump. It's all bullshit, but like, it's very funny how mm. that's sort of like a time capsule of like the 2016, um, the awareness of the Eurasianist mindset. And it's very funny how nowadays we don't even care about this anymore because it's like now domestically America has like the, the fruits of Alexander Dugan is in America totally. And so now we don't give a shit about what Russia's doing anymore. Well, the only, the, the only thing I would collapsed, right? The only thing, uh, <laughs> Geo, that I would say about Dugan, and that's the only thing I'll say, I'm not going to harp on as usual. <laughs> I'm not going to harp on. The only thing I'll say is I think Dugan is somebody who writes really beautifully and attractfully so that people who aren't smart enough can get fooled by him. It really takes somebody who's smart and wise to be able to see through that well, sort of tongue. Maybe that describes half the think tanks in America, man. 
That's what I was going to say. Maybe if me and Prudentialists get enough uh, Peter Thiel money, then we'll be able to change things. Oh, don't bring that Ooh. meme in. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. Are we, we going to talk about techno-utopianism? Let's, let's do it. Oh, God. Well, I'm kidding. Par- apparently, that's all where the Super Chats Prudentialist gets from is from uh, Peter Thiel. So. I wish. <laughs> yeah, me too, yeah. bro. Well, last night I had a dream that uh, uh, Hassan Piker... Uh, went on BTR, or he was gonna go on BTR the next day, and he day. got slaughtered by us. Well, no, I don't think I got to the point where he was on BTR. Like the dream only talked about him going on BTR the next day, and also oh, he sent me uh, Hassan Piker sent me a lot of Bitcoin apparently in the dream. Well, when you can afford a house like that, I'd imagine he'd send you some Bitcoin. <laughs> Let's make this dream into a reality. Let's bury the hatchet, Hassan. Um. Y- I'm not going to say anything bad about him. (laughs) But anyway, uh, okay, back to the Huntsman. We would get thousands of views from that stream, but not not any good, though. Huntsman, I am curious, though, if uh, you would give any credence to what I said earlier on before Gio's beautiful uh, conversation about the time capsule. Would you give any credence to what I said earlier on about um, what may potentially happen with the brown nosing and the dictatorship? I think that there is going to be an enormous appeal to dictatorships and authoritarianism in in the coming generation, for sure. The the average person, certainly in the last 50 years, is conditioned to believe that the system, whatever they regard as the system, right? But the overstate, the system, the construct of the simulation, whatever it may be, but that there is a plan and that there is... um, some sort of thing that has to make sense, right? And that is the appeal of a strong man, is that the the appeal of a strong man is that he brings order from chaos, is that he makes things make sense in a way that now I, as a normal person, don't have to think too much, and I can kind of sort of go back to autopilot. And people will accept a great deal of evil. They will accept a great deal of tyranny. They will accept a great deal of ceding control of themselves and their own individual sovereignty as long as things make sense. And that's where I, I depart very strongly with a lot of people in sort of my generalist conservative circles where it's like that scene. And I think it's the very first Avengers movie where, you know, the one man refuses to kneel and Loki says, you know, gives a speech about you were made to be ruled. I don't think humans were made to be ruled. I do think there is beyond everything else, a sense of human dignity and desire to be free for the average person. But I think you can subsume that desire and, and make it say, well, you're free. If you become part of the masses, if you become a part of this project and safety and collectivism, and that is, I think the human impulse towards, you know, Brown nosing towards sucking up to centers of power is such that if I do that, it's easier than to stand alone and to try to kind of chart my own course or work with others to chart mutually our own course, right? There's the collectivism of individual action and there's the collectivism of tyranny. And I think a lot of people will naturally and unthinkingly choose the latter as opposed to the difficult path of finding ways to cooperate with people and systems, which is the former structure. 
that, I guess that's my view. Maybe well, I missed that. Well, but. no, what you're talking about is definitely, uh, definitely ringing true, but you're talking about it more from the perspective of the individual within uh, this whole uh, nation state or whatever that has a dictatorship. The thing that I was focusing on here, which I would also, if you have any opinion on this, uh, has to do with the people in power, like the people that, let's say, were in Stalin's inner circle, mm -hmm. that he was constantly shearing. So he would constantly execute, you know, lob the heads off of one layer, then the new layer comes in, then he lobs the heads off And then off cut them out layer. of photos and stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> with that, you have somebody who's afraid of anybody who's coming in there who's too smart for their own good, who's too smart, and who will be able to usurp the rule from Stalin. Which is why, again, he ended up surrounding himself with a lot of uh, brown nosers. And even mm -hmm. they ended up getting the hatchet eventually, except for, uh, you know, who who ended up surviving and taking over from Stalin because he pretended to be stupid, you know. I'll, but anyway, like, uh, do you see that being something that would ultimately doom a country like China under a top-down rule? Because the actual decision makers, the actual policy setters are eventually just going to be, like I said before, suck-ups, brown nosers people who just want to tell the dictator what he wants to hear as opposed to actually being effective statesmen. Yeah, I think in some ways, like when you look at like, you know, Deng Xiaoping, for example, um, he was almost an aberration in communist philosophy. If you, if you look at the way communists have variously tried to synthesize communism or collectivism with the various you know, permutations over the years, you know, Deng in a lot of ways was, I, I, I maintain now he was not a good person or a good man. Uh, if you look at what happened in Tiananmen Square, and I'm, I'm sure Logo is going to probably have something to say about that long-term, but, but if you, it, but if you look at from our Westernized perspective, at least the way in which he went about that, if you don't subscribe to the ideology that power, you know, comes from the barrel of a gun or grows in the barrel of a gun, we look at that as, as like horrific and unethical, but then, if you look at the way in which, you know, he dang very slowly and methodically begin to co-opt the West and begin to co-opt our attitudes, there is a brilliance to that that is undeniable, uh, certainly from a game theory perspective, an economic perspective, whatever it may be. When you look at Stalin, though, Stalin didn't offer a whole lot except we are going to run roughshod across the world and you are with me or you are against me. There was not a compelling, overarching, really recognition or economic theory that said that that Russia can be both economic and military power center of the world, which the U.S. managed to figure out for a long time. That was what Pax Americana was. We were both economic and military, you know, sort of hegemon, right? We, we The world traded with us and we protected the world in that trade with our defense of the global commons through Air Force, Army, Marines and Navy and, and Coast Guard. I don't want to leave them out. Right. Yeah. But that's in more of our coastal waters. But what China's trying to do is sort of reconcile um, the flaw, sort of trying to repair the flaws of Soviet communists and ideology. And Xi Jinping thinks he's, he's, he's sort of found that thread through the thorns of how the Soviets ran things and how the Americans ran things. And he's going to do it differently. He's going to make communism work for the first time ever. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I speculate that it won't. Because I speculate that the, that the natural innate desire that humans have for freedom and some level of self-determination, even when we fall into collectivist mentalities, a lot of times at some level, we want to be free more than we want to be ruled. 
I think it's a defeating, self-defeating ideology, but I also think it is going to cause an awful lot of pain for an awful lot of people over the next, say, 25 to 50 years to resolve that once again, that there is some, there are some equilibrium required between maximum laissez-faire individual self-interest and maximum communist level um, subsume the individual to the collective and all will be free or all will be prosperous. Neither of those extremes is possible. And the argument for the next 50 years as to what extent we're going to kind of sort of fall to one extreme or another in the way we live our own lives. And then the way the nation states we fall under and we're citizens of live, you know, choose to govern themselves. I think we're going to have a lot of uh, great cuts that I can extract from this particular stream for shorts based on your monologues huntsman i really appreciate Sorry. that why are you <laughs> apologizing <laughs> no you're giving no huntsman you have to understand what's going on in the back room i'm the only one who's i mean i'm pretty much doing everything i have no i have no help whatsoever when it comes to the shorts when it comes to scheduling all that all that stuff as as btr grows i hope that i'll be able to employ some people but basically the fact that you were able to have so many beautiful monologues that you said it's extremely good for me because I remember, okay, this is going to be the stream that I'm going to have a lot of uh, shorts to extract from. And that's great because I want there to be shorts for people to watch every day because not everybody's going to watch this whole entire stream. So I just want to say again, Huntsman, you are an incredibly eloquent uh, individual. And I really appreciate the fact that uh, you are here with us talking about it. Uh, so th thank you again. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. I Geo and, and, and Prudentialist Love, I mean, all three of you guys, I, I have I have enjoyed to an extraordinary immense extent the the differing perspective and I guess shades of, of views that have come through here. And if we can't have these sorts of conversations and, and, and an open, rational, logical seeking to kind of understand the various worldviews, if we can't do those sorts of things, man, like it doesn't matter what we believe. This is all hopeless anyway. Yeah, you know, fundamentally, the ability to be wrong and to be right and to work with others to figure out to what extent we agree on wrong and right. I think that is probably the first and foremost human right. I think that's why the First Amendment is the first is, is because the ability to clearly communicate and openly resolve what we disagree with. Man, I, like, I love that. Like, that is everything. This this has been a phenomenal, and I'm so grateful to all of you guys. Thank you. I'm grateful, I'm grateful to the chat, too. Thing. They've made me laugh internally, like, many times, where uh, I read something funny and I don't want to break, but <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> oh, man, I've had incidents like that all the time. I want to get to the Prudentialist, then. Prudentialist, final thoughts on what we talked about with Afghanistan, with everything, as well as with, uh, if you have any thoughts on the, uh, the matter of t uh, authoritarianism oh, and boy. all that. So, that's <laughs> you're right. Yeah, I don't, agree with employee Geo. That is yeah. right. Yeah, and that's next, a good and idea. Next time, mm -hmm. And next time, turn your, turn your webcam on if you have any frogs because oh. <laughs> i'm a big lover of frogs i know you like frogs too so uh, uh, so so yeah. to give context to huntsman so like every sunday i do a show on geopolitics or national relations whether it's theory whether it's the going on and usually sometimes the topics are dour right so at the end of the stream i do like what's called the frog of the week i put on like a new species i give a little lesson and we ended you on a good note that from petty lincoln stan bro oh no so you stole that from uh the what was his name 
I have no idea. And was so it keep... Petty Lincolnstan or was it that griper? I well, I don't know. I follow Petty Lincolnstan, mm. but I mean, I do this on the stream. Oh, he... oh and by Sorry. the way, YouTube, YouTube.com slash The Prudentialist. That is uh, The Prudentialist YouTube. Please subscribe to him. Well, thank you. I think you. it was. But, uh... No, I was thinking of that griper used to do Bug of the Week. Oh, well, anyways, that's what we I should do. do that, bu that's bug the Man of the Week. That's going to be. Uh... Oh, God. Start <laughs> with I threw it in our magazine. We actually had a, a thing top 10 bug man i remember our editor can, can you do like top 30 bug men under 30 like what forbes does <laughs> yeah but, is um, chris hayes under 30 oh that's a good question um <laughs> he look, he's like 14 going on 40 so that's <laughs> there you go. that's how he looks that's we used to have a term for it back in 2015 in thermometer mag days and the social matter days we used to call them the young martin sheehan face lesbian look that's what we used to call them. Because if you look at like the bug man, <laughs> they look like young Martin Sheehan face. It's there you go. Uh, so um, wait, but... we're, we're, are we talking like like apocalypse now, but with like multicolored hair? Yeah. Or kind yeah. of what we're okay. All right, gotcha. Yeah. I sort of I sort of get the gestalt of what you're looking. Like at imagine here. if you were to combine like old like like mush face Martin Sheehan with his younger self. But like the body would be obviously of older Martin Sheen. Then you'd get like the uh, the Chris Hayes, um, Bugman. Like like Facebook had the best tweet. He's like the 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 modern phenotype of hypermodernity. Is like and it's a picture of Chris Hayes. Is like the small souled Bugman. Is Facebook still around? Because like brilliant, brilliant only for boomers. Content. Only yeah, for boomers, he, only for people like me. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the average, well, like I do a lot of like IRL work for like media and advertising and sponsorship stuff. So like, um, I know like the average age of a Facebook user is somewhere in like the late 40s now. Like the only reason why I still have one and I'm in my like mid to late 20s now. Oh, he meant just... the poster Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. Oh, the poster Facebook. Oh, Facebook. No, that guy, no, he's still no, he left. He came back a little bit, but then he went back. No, no, okay. it's still around then. Apparently, totally like him, him and Drill are or like went or whatever he goes by okay. are, it's like right wing the, left those two dudes are just magnificent <laughs> at cutting through the stupidity and the noise of everything and just being like here's a signal of absurdity that will help you clarify one of my favorite all insane things about the world was, um oh sorry i'm putting my camera sorry my old man is delivering my cat <laughs> um, no uh no my favorite tweet by by um Facebook was if you want a vision of the future, imagine like a uh, sassy, uh, like a, an overweight DMV worker twerking on the ruins forever. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> say hi, Benito. Say We're hi. Close. Oh, by the way, could, awesome. you, could you do the Lion King thing? Unless Benito yeah, doesn't like it. I, I don't know. Oh, there we go. Oh, Nazaquenia. Nazaquenia. <laughs> um, don't don't do the don't do the one where he actually like throws oh, yeah, don't need him off. <laughs> oh apparently some there was a rumor that facebook was an asian woman i don't know if that's true it's probably not true it would be i used perfect. to love facebook's writing if you uh like the blog back in the day like there was this one article duff duff q uh coquette i think it was called that was a really great one but um no drill like i don't know just weird twitter is if you want to talk about bug men, like basically the remains of like going from something awful to weird Twitter to like nowadays, I guess it's just Chapo people. Like that's like, you know, that's like bug man du jour right there. Matt Christman then would be Matt, right exactly. there. Exactly. Cush bomb. 
But yeah, my cats are doing well. They got fixed the other day, so oh. they're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. It took them. It took them a total of three hours to get the fucking helmet off. And so me and my old man, like, no way we're going to, like, put him back on. Like, it's, like, you have to put it on for three days. I go, yeah, right, three hours. That's what it took. They, like, that went up against the fence. That awesome. Like, I want to pet that cat. Like, it is yeah. a gorgeous, oh, yeah. gorgeous feline, man. Good oh, job. Pretty soon, I think we're going to have VR headsets inside of our brain so that we would have the Zoom call, and at the same time, we can reach through the void and be able to actually <laughs> touch the texture of Geo's yeah. cat. We so, so Elon, to... so like Neuralink is literally all about being able to pet other people's cats. Oh yeah, and other things. I like Elon, this. like Elon has got this like unlock figured out. Got it. Exactly. I guess so... Grimes was like all on Adderall and uh, some other experimental drug. When I, what if I could pet the cat that I'm watching across the thing? What and if Elon's we name like, our? Yeah, we could we do that. Kids. <laughs> wingdings format name. <laughs> we just gave him a name like paul but it was in wingdings yeah. format that's what we're gonna name our kid like oh, way to go elon and grimes good job guys amazing what, wait what's the what's their kid's name uh, it's literally like mathematical symbols and letters and i think oh yeah name. that's right it's like the x a e something yeah, yeah. <laughs> how to ruin your kid's life forever like, like your kid's name <laughs> Like his name is literally like Algebra Musk. I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh God! No, here, this is the name right over here. X, and the e. Aeon. I think that's like Aeon. Yeah. I remember when celebrities used to call the kids Apple. Remember that? That was going to the the, the yeah, best meme I saw Falcon. about like Elon's kid's name was just like he's in school. They're doing attendance, and his kid opens his mouth, and it's the dial-up sound. <laughs> <laughs> But the Windows, yeah. the Windows me dial-up sound. Guess who's not? Like, guess who's not going to get to go to Mars on the first few rocket ships? The four of us. Oh man! <laughs> Why? Well, I'm glad though. There's ghosts up there. You don't want to. I've, I've, you know what? Nobody man, gets I, that reference. I, I played a lot of Doom. I've seen Ghosts of Mars. Oh, um, there you see. So you do, yeah. A total Recall. Like I legit. <laughs> have a serious fear about colonizing yeah. Mars. Cause just, just according take the to all the pop culture, the gun and don't have a doom it. three moment. You have to go that's up it. there with, with, uh, I guess ice cube is still, is he still willing to be employed now or I don't know, that's man. we're literally all <laughs> when I was a kid, that was like Mars one of my favorite movies <laughs> <laughs> that and vampires. I, I know people hate nineties, John Carpenter, but it's late nineties. I mean, no, Baron man. Trump what was is, it, uh, wait, in, when did in, they in the mouth of, come out in the mouth of madness came out in like 91, right? Oh like, yeah. That was that's a fantastic right. film. Oh yeah, yeah. That's great. Mm. That's a great film. When man. did they Sam, live come out? Cr- cr- no, crazy Sam Neill. Um, yeah, they live was in the eighties. Well, yeah. the mouth of madness, that was all about like the inner earth, Garth related stuff, right? I haven't seen yeah, it. Man. That's, that's yeah. And that's yeah, a great the, film. Oh, by the way, speaking of that, I want to make a short announcement. There is a satellite launch that I kind of helped out with in terms of um, when my friend who works for Teachers in Space or heads up Teachers in Space, she asked me, like, Lev, I'm launching a satellite. Where would you like it to go? Obviously, I said Antarctica. So I hopefully have started something here where we'll be able to see images of Antarctica, which I cannot find anywhere else. Like if you look at Google Maps and stuff, it's all very, you know, blurry. What exactly is going down? We saw there. the thing, dude. You were just talking about John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Like, like we know what Antarctica is. 
Yeah. There's just a bunch of <laughs> mutated dogs crawling yeah. around the middle of Antarctica. Yeah. It's a bunch of dudes yelling at us in Finnish that the dog is the alien and don't pet it. Clearly, we're all going to die. By the way, it's actually starting. This is great timing. So the launch of the Firefly Alpha uh, satellite is starting in 14 minutes. Here's I'm the link to it. Up. Are they going yeah. to, what are they going to observe? So they are going to take pictures of uh, various places. Little St. James. Well, hopefully, well, including Antarctica. <laughs> so at least the drone was oh, able to Oh, Antarctica. Go to they'll have... Uh, well, that's, again... Like, that see is... the reptilians, they have a base there. Yeah, well, I want Because it's closest to, see... to the moon. I, I want to see if they can see the hole. You know, the hole that leads to Agartha. That's what, uh, that's what I want to see them uh, photograph. Well, maybe they can also fly over Denver International Airport and find out what the hell's going on there. Yeah. That mural. It's, just some, it's just some crazy murals that, like, you know... Like the are a map to a bunker underneath the airport. They're a map to a bunker. Did you know they moved eighty thousand tons of dirt in order to make these bunkers? Oh, they it's could a, do it. They have underground tunnel. Apparently, there's whole civilizations underneath. There, there's like uh, different royal families that have different like mutant cave people they keep down there that war with each other. That's how the Romanovs survived. Yeah, exactly. There's a secret <laughs> war going on between America and Canada. The War of 1812 never stopped. It just went underground between mutant people that are somewhat Canadian, somewhat American. There was an export. I'm, I'm talking about this X thread that I, you know, it's pretty mm. popular. Clearly. Oh, <laughs> so, Fidel, so, Fidel, so Fidel yeah. Castro's like bastard son who's currently running Canada Yes, underneath is is, is yeah. part of this war of 1812 that has never stopped. Yeah, yeah. but it's underneath the ground in the uh, cave systems. He, he's like the basin red pilled version of Trudeau, basically. <laughs> <laughs> By I the way, kinda, it's kind of like uh, Igor. It's kind of like uh, Igor and Bart. They thought that <clears throat> Igor was the evil one. <laughs> 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 Ramas Draven, by the way, writes, Lev, is that allowed? Talking about the uh, satellite launch looking at Antarctica. I mean, look, unlike all you people who love making those threads with that uh, music and those images of the swastikas and shit, uh, unlike... <laughs> no, unlike, they're Sunnerads, Lev. They're not swastikas. Whatever, whatever. Unlike all you people who are all <laughs> talk, who are all talk, There's I a big am difference. all... I am all walk. I am actually getting satellite footage for you people of what is going down there, or at least trying my best. So, you know, this is where we get to really test about Chinese satellite kill weapons. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'm putting it to the test, baby. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, who to uh, give field. Ch China to. wants to prevent you from finding the hollow earth portal in Antarctica, because for many generations, the Chinese Han peasants were conquered and enslaved by and dominated by very small bands of steppe Aryan warriors like the Mongols and the Manchu. And so the, just out of sheer resentment, they want to close off our um, portal to the hollow to the hollow earth Agarthan civilization mm. because they remember when the Agarthans, uh, their, their ancestors kicked the ass of their ancestors. So it's kind of like, oh, boy. This next, has Stargate vibes. Next thing, next I, thing. I can't hear thing. anything other than the fact that I'm pretty sure Geo has that cat in like a baby Bjorn harness right now. Yeah, because, no. dude, yeah. that cat is chilling like a villain. That is awesome. Oh yeah. Mm. Next Wait till it know... gets to nighttime more, then they'll they'll start. Like you can't call them. Yeah. Her, him and uh, his sister Hildy. It's like because <laughs> at nighttime they'll come alive and. Uh... Ne next They're thing we know, next... man. 
It's so it's so adorable. And next thing we know, we're gonna have a video where uh, there's gonna be guitar music, like banjo music in the background, and Geo's <laughs> gonna be uh, walking to Niagara Falls, and he's gonna be like uh, feeding feeding the ducks or whatever is going on there. And go uh, to Happy Ralphs and feed the ducks. <laughs> yes, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be the future right there. Talking about China and uh, the pyramids and all that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Prudentialist. You have yeah. the final word of the day. Whatever you want to say, it is it is up to you. Go for it. Sure. So we, we talked about a lot. We covered a variety of topics. But uh, as for Afghanistan, Lord only knows what might be coming in the future. There are way, there's a lot of parties involved. I'll shill mm. a little bit here. I've, I've talked about Afghanistan now, I think, in the last month, at least four or five different streams, two on my own channel. <laughs> but uh, A <laughs> few hours uh, each. Uh, yeah, a few hours each. And then uh, this is the first time I'm talking about after the evacuation and things. So uh, what only I can imagine happens now is going to be the... A variety of parties involved. I, I do think that the Taliban are going to try their best to play nice because they don't want an immediate sort of invitation of other powers. They kind of want some independence, but America is not going to be completely withdrawn from that area. I just think that being a realist in international relations, I just don't see that happening. Uh, but to answer the real, the question I really wanted to get into, Lev, was about, you know, what does it look like to either be post-liberal or to be post, you know, what we see in our values? I think that you can have some form of a democratic system. But I think that with the current problem that we have now here in the U.S. is that we are growing increasingly um, partisan. Uh, and I mean that along like political, racial, you know, idealistic lines. And I, I look back at Carl Schmidt, and anytime a democracy gets to that point, it just becomes about who gets to be majoritarian and it doesn't matter why and you punish your enemies. And that makes me worried at the same time, because we're having all this sort of, you know, the things that founded this country, it's founding mythos, it's founding symbology are being touted as these resentful, hateful, racist things. So it becomes very difficult to understand well, what's supposed to be the unifying factor, the sort of woke business that we're seeing now which is, you know, not going to work for the majority of the population, which keeps being derided as, you know, the root cause of all of America's problems. Um, but to to answer your question, what does it look like? Well, I get to be a little, you know, cliffhanger here, here, and say that I'm working on that. I'm, I'm writing out and I'm conducting some research with some people about other forms of governments, the, you know, Germanic Confederation, the early Soviet, or the early, you know, Roman Republic. And trying to find an answer to that question of what would function, because you can't go back to 1789. You can't go back to 1955 or even 1995. The technology oh, is still here. Oh, I fucking to... love 1995. Well, yeah, I, I, so do yeah. I. I was born that year. I like being alive. Um, <laughs> but like we we can't we can't just, unless you do full Butlerian jihad. I don't think you can go back to that. So what is the way that you can incorporate technology, incorporate a cultural identity and incorporate a way where there is still rule and an essence of comfort, but at the same time, you have to, uh, I think that um, Huntsman is right, that we're going to see a lot of more strongman politics, but I think that the candidate or leader or whoever who can channel sort of the American low energy politics, because, you know, we, we've kind of come down to just the basic political rallies and voting. We don't do anything major. We're not the men who did like the Battle of Athens in, in 1949. If we, whoever can channel the, the guys that say they just want to grill or they just want to have a nice school and just want to have a nice neighborhood, sort of the basic material things while also addressing the spiritual root causes of our problem, that's the guy that kind of starts to win things, whether that's by election or by taking power. Um, that, that would be my thought on it. But I am working on sort of my own proposed idea for what it would look like, because I think we're the, the kind of way that we're in right now with 
who's in charge and what the idea is. I don't think that that's very sustainable for a very long time. And that worries me mm-hmm. because people all people on like inner Twitter politics or whatever, they're like, well, this is so great. This means that like the American empire will collapse. You do oh, not, yeah. you don't want that to happen. I'm going to, I'll make the case right now. You don't want that to happen because collapse looks like the failure of supply lines. Medicine's not getting in. The fact is, is that if the U.S. were to collapse, you're going to have Soviet Union 1991 times 10 because loose Let's nukes, fucking go. you don't want that, <laughs> Geo. You don't want yeah. that. You don't Come want on, I'd love it if it was like Sarajevo. I get to just pop off some soy bo- No, Geo, Geo, you're already I'm a kidding. satellite state of China. So like you can already tell us how bad <laughs> yeah. collapse is. Listen, we need accelerative politics that. now. We need it. We have. We you need an insurgency. We need an insurgency. No, 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 no. Because Gio, you invite, you know, invite the same problem no, you know what? Prudentialist, has. Prudentialist you know what G- book you need to read? You need to read uh, Jihad and Italian Futurism by Thurston Botts Borstein. Huntsman, have you ever heard of this? It's called ISIS and Italian Futurism. Oh, God. I you know, you need to read this book in order to... Re- it's about our criticism... But you really, you can really understand the sort of alternative to modern Western American Anglo-liberal democracy by viewing an alternative view of technology that is out of the hands of the global empire and is in the hands of the nomadology of various traditionalist radicalized groups. It's the ultimate archaeofuturism, folks. Read this book, The Taliban Using, Technolo- Using Meme Culture. That is our future. Yeah, the we Geo, 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 I just, I just had a brilliant thought. Geo, I just had a brilliant thought. Sorry, we I could, cut off the prudentialist. I'm sorry. You, you know how we could accomplish what you want uh, for yourself? We can uh, get you arrested. We got to get Geo to prison. <laughs> so if then I'll become gonna... the leader of the yes, uh, of exactly. a certain gang and, exactly. and, that, and that, the GP prison yard. <laughs> I'll be like Vern Schillinger. the real life Tony Soprano. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> be like Vern Schillinger from Oz. Yeah. I don't know. Inclu- in- including the things that he told Melfi that he did not do because he was not there that long. But <laughs> oh, you gonna pass for that? <laughs> we're gonna all end. Up, we're gonna all end up in a global economy where cigarettes are the only currency. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm screwed. In Oz, they call drugs tits. That's what they call them as a code word. So we'll be passing like cigarettes. We'll call them tits, and they'll be like, "Do you have, you know?" They'll, we'll we'll hide cigarettes in HRT pill bottles as a form of currency. Mm. It's kind of like when they hollow out a book, like the prisoners, to like pass on drugs. It'll be like the only thing they won't search is the HRT bottles. So that'll be. I know well, this is fucking nightmare. Sorry, Prudentialist, we cut you off. You're, right, you're Prudentialist. Go, go but, for it. But like you don't you don't want that kind of. I don't think people who are sort of like yeah, accelerate, bring on, collapse. I definitely hold on to the school of Paul Virilio, where it's just like, listen, any time that you create something or you accelerate, you increase the risk of accident um, to a point wow. where you achieve like the original accident, where you know at a certain point that that means all of it comes together, and it usually comes into a way where there's no way to take it back because it's outside of your hands because you can no longer keep up with the pace of acceleration, and that's because my concern. Because speed becomes the total yes um, molecular strut like. To well, Virilio, not... speed is like the molecular structure that totally encompasses the self to the point where there is nothing but motion. There's nothing... Yeah, especially in regards to technology, politicization, yes. and socialization. So this yeah. is why I 
and this is where I will disagree with somewhat of the neo reactionary <laughs> position of like accelerate now, like bring it all on to the mm, you know yeah. uh, zombie apocalypse mode. I'm like, I don't you 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 don't want that. Trust me. Um, mm. Or the people who want that, they should be the first ones to actually experience the closest possible simulation of what that is for themselves. Be it like yeah. go to go to Afghanistan or go somewhere. Well, I mean, can... I, I I think the if you want to if you want to experience that love, just go raid fanged Numa Numa and tell me how well you understood oh, it on God. your first go. Oh, and to Ivan in the chat, there is a few issues why there's <laughs> oh, God, a few that reasons is ancient, why that is an ancient oh, meme. God. Oh, yeah, man. that is an ancient. It's oh, an ancient God. meme, but it checks out, sir. Checks out. <laughs> no, like there was a few points where Oz was bullshit. One. The Italians were almost naturally in some in some states. They were kind of like cool with the Aryan Brotherhood. For example, John Gotti actually paid them for protection when he didn't have enough mafiosi around him. Number two is that Vern Schillinger was the shot caller. He would not have a Prague in his cell. He would not be like they outlaw. They straight up outlaw homosexuality among the Aryan Brotherhood. So he would not be going around with the with the servant, if you know what I mean. That was mm. totally unrealistic. Another point would be that um, I don't know. It's it depends. In Canada, they really don't have. Apart from the natives, they don't really have a lot of prison gangs. Mm. They have like some, but not. I By guess the way, there's some old, come, there's some ancient the Aryan... guys in Toronto that were from the Italian mafia. By the way, how come the Aryan Brotherhood has the four leaf clover, or like a clover, as their uh, symbol? Oh, that's very weird because. The four-leaf clover is, the, okay, so a lot of them are Norse pagans, but a lot of them are this, like, weird form of, like, biblical, literalist Protestant Christianity. So they use the symbol of the four-leaf clover as a symbol of St. Peter. Is it St. Peter? The No, sorry, St. Patrick, the patron saint mm -hmm. of Ireland. So, as a way, so they cross it out with the 666 as a way of going against the moral law of St. Patrick. It, that's Damn, it's like this wow. really weird wasp version of yeah you get like half I, I had no idea i would get an odinists. answer to that that is amazing thank you yeah Gia. you basically have a, a fusion of like odinists and um like really waspy christians that believe that jesus was a nordic Aryan. like they they believe basically what miguel serrano believed in which said jesus was an i know this because there was this guy who was a former shock caller that like turned legitimate like he denounced the brotherhood i think his name is um something thompson but yeah basically it's really weird like for example a lot of their runes are very like americanized mm. too so because the brotherhood they have to be like very brutal and vicious because they're literally outnumbered in any prison they go to so yeah it's weird john Gotti actually paid them and then when he figured he had enough italian people in prison with him he like stopped paying the brotherhood so the brotherhood actually paid a, a guy from a black gang to attack john Gotti right before his uh parole wow. hearing <laughs> and so then john is like yeah i guess i'll fucking pay you like <laughs> by the way before before i get to one super chat that anthony charan did i just want to let you know that uh in the national arts club there was this uh wonderful wonderful uh, uh gentleman who worked at the uh, front desk whose name was miguel serrano and uh, unfortunately he passed away but this is he this is miguel right over here and so r.i.p miguel i really appreciate all the times that i uh, spent with him wonderful wonderful guy and uh yeah it's just kind of a coincidence you know that he has that same name but uh anyway we have one super chat over here from anthony charan five u.s dollars kabul gigafactory when afghans oh. demand teslas 
don't they have enough from the Americans of the all the arsenal and what all the stuff? Isn't that enough? I don't know. Well, they, I mean, they, the, the they Humvees have, are going to break down. Well, the Afghanis are white, according to Bronze Age Pervert. The the this Pashtun warriors, they're white. They're Aryans. No, no. Have you ever seen uh, that picture of the guy that fought the Soviet Union? No, but that's not you the know? Pashtuns. That's the um uh the other the uh the yeah not the Pashtuns the the stands Waziris. No, well that too, but no. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Never mind. Guys, Some of them are Indo-Aryan, like step people. Yes. Yeah. Man, I wish I could remember who exactly. Oh, oh, the Tajiks. That's it. The Tajiks. Yeah. Tajiks. Yes. See this. See, you have to hang out with enough online racists on Twitter <laughs> to know the different ethnic group. Oh God. Well, guys, that's this is a very fun endorsement there, Gio. Way to go. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess this is going to be the alternative university system. Like, either it's going to be, like, woke. <laughs> the Khan well, Institute, but, yeah. like, Hakan is your um, anthropology professor. So, so it's going to be... Academy, but zero <laughs> HP Khan, is yeah. The... Yeah. Khan Academy, but zero <laughs> HP Lovecraft so, is your literature teacher. Yeah, so Hunts, Huntsman, yeah. on one hand, in the, uh, in the real world, in IRL, you have colleges that are going to teach critical race theory. On the other hand, online you're gonna have uh, uh, the uh, extremely online people teaching critical race theory so there we go critical base theory oh okay <laughs> fine whatever anyway guys this is the end of the stream patreon.com slash break the rules you see this magnet over here Brittany venti magnet moth magnet anybody who's a fan of Brittany venti let me know and i'm gonna send you this magnet when you become a 20 dollar patron to patreon.com slash break the rules five dollar patrons are going to get mp3s of the episodes after they come out they're gonna get super uh secret uh discord areas as well as patreon only streams which we are gonna do i want to bring the whole gang back together i want to get blue shoe i want to get hero I want to get all the people who I love talking with and just get everybody together to have a private Patreon-only uh, hangout. I want to do it in the uh, several weeks to come. In the I classic BTR style of, like, 12 different schizos in a live <laughs> yes. stream wigging out. Exactly. And um, by the way, I wanted to say this one joke in the beginning of the stream, but I didn't feel an yeah. appropriate oh, wait, time. Wait, oh, wait, wait. And Cyber Ninja said, uh, critical racist theory. <laughs> racist theory. Go. No, Lev said that the women in afghanistan couldn't walk now they can't walk the streets but young boys in afghanistan can walk the streets freely because of the taliban there you go oh, that's true <laughs> the, the, the so hard when i laugh. was when i was in high school we had to read the kite runner and the total propaganda bullshit along with three cups of tea uh during the obama years in fa actual fact, the Taliban was getting rid of Bakabazi. It wasn't like I went back and the, my, the bully from my high school becomes a lieutenant in the Taliban and he's got my little, uh, my illegitimate nep uh, cousin's kid or whatever the fuck. Like, that was total bullshit. That's total bullshit. So on to uh, the uh, uh, Patreon. Once Huntsman, again, what do you, you think get... of the Kite Runner, by the way? I haven't read it. Yeah. Have you read Three Cups of Tea? I've not. Oh, <laughs> you missed out. <laughs> that my, was like my, the du jour foreign my, policy book of the Obama administration. It was total my, bullshit. <laughs> my experience with Bakabazi and a number of other issues that we have dealt with Afghanistan has been lar largely informed by the fact that, uh, you know, a, a good number of, of colleagues and, and associates of mine were, you know, 
civil affairs and SF and a whole lot of other things over the last oh, 20 years, plus my own, you know, involvement logistically with, uh, with the campaign. So um, I, I kind of actually avoided a lot of the, a lot of the literature and a lot of the media that, that came out of that time. Cause I'm like, yeah, I, like 90% of this is going to be bullshit that doesn't mm. agree with my own experiences and knowledge and firsthand communications of what's going on there. So because um, they used to hand them out to foreign, like foreign oh, yeah. policy people yeah. and journalists and shit. They used to hand them three cups of tea, but and it was but total the thing, bullshit. The, the thing you guys got to understand about me is that um, there's like think tank people, and then there's like me who, like nobody in think tank world, like really likes. Mm. You know, yeah. so it's it's. Uh, yeah. I, I think because instead of being a think tank guy, I think mm. for myself. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you when you speak, you don't sound like a talking head, which is important. You know what I mean? Like there are some people who we've had on like very early episodes of BTR. They came in, they had like the bookcase behind them and they were just like it, it felt like you were not talking to the person. You were talking to this mask that they had to, uh, you know, show off to the Wait, world. Wait, who are you subtweeting, Lev? Ah, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Like way, <laughs> no, who are you talking early, about specifically? Way early in BTR history. It's uh, like one of the first episodes that we did. So don't worry. Oh, about shit. Check, this is before check, my time. Yeah. Check like the first 10 podcasts and you'll probably be able to like narrow it. Yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, we had I'm, people like that yeah. after too. That was good. Well, we had a lot of interesting people. But anyway, by the way, uh, okay. Okay, Patreon. I gotta finish the Patreon. I keep getting bumped when it comes to Patreon. I will not get bumped this time because we are gonna talk about Giovanni Panichetti's absolutely out of this world beautiful Patreon prints, mm. which you can get when you become a $30 patron. And they are from the TFW No GF series. You see them on the screen right now. Watch Geo Go make these beautiful we can't see uh, prints. It for you guys and uh $50 patrons are going to get all of the above plus a custom magnet whatever magnet design you want we are going to make it for you uh, well my dad's going to make it for you and it's going to be very beautiful and uh, you are also going to get upon request one of the thumbnails uh, again only upon request oh, that is so adorable i can't even speak that's how adorable that is upon request <laughs> of uh, yeah. whatever the thumbnails that my father uh, did and in fact my father recently did the thumbnail to our next event we are having it on tuesday and that is going to be sticks hex and hammer 666 with paul rossi and Paul Rossi. He had an absolute terrible take today on the Texas thing, by the way. Well, I, I, I couldn't. He got ratioed for it, but it was. Okay, well, ask him when he comes in, ask him about the Texas thing. No, because I know what he's going to say. He made the whole Richard Hernana argument. I don't, I oh, don't God, that was into. so bad. Yeah. By the way, check, check this out over here. So this is Sticks oh my God. in a roller coaster with Paul Rossi. For those who don't know who Paul Rossi is, he was the uh, teacher from Grace Church uh, High School who was fired for opposing critical race theory. And they are in a roller coaster, and you could see the spoons in the background. The roller coaster's got spoons. And uh, this is like Styx's cat, who was the head mast here of the roller coaster, and Styx is in his Hawaiian shirt. And the city in the 
background is actually the city that he is currently residing in right now in a, in a, the Netherlands. So anyway, that is coming up on Tuesday. You've heard about Patreon. And last thing, for all the friends of Huntsman here, for all the newcomers, Huntsman, whenever you come around, we get a lot of wonderful, brilliant people in the chat who I think come from you. And I really appreciate you guys watching this. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you are going to have to go to our Discord server. So here is the link to the Discord server. I am pasting it in the chat right now. Go there right now. Become a member of our Discord, and you will not regret it because we are elevating the conversation. We are, I mean, look at this. Like, we are having anonymous, beautiful, brilliant people from Twitter like the Prudentialists together with IRL people like uh, Huntsman, and we are doing it. We are combining yeah. things that have not been combined before, and nobody else is doing what BTR is doing, guaranteed, and it's only going to be growing from here with and, your help. And to VTR, VDR, I do stand our homies with an extra chromie. Uh, I grew up in school with a Down Syndrome person, and he used to troll the shit out of all the... Because uh, they used to have like the special class, but they would like interact with the other kids and he used to like troll the hell out of the autistic kids it was hilarious he used to like uh shout out to kevin i love him man but um yeah so it's like, literally he was that meme like the chad downey versus the virgin autistic kid you know that one particular edit lev no i gotta well, check well, it i out. gotta throw it up look it up the chad downey versus the virgin autistic it was literally that meme <laughs> All right, let's oh, see if I can uh, find it here. Oh, okay, it's too small right now. Uh, I oh, here we go. See, I just want to make sure there's nothing written here that's going to uh, yeah, going to ban us. Yeah, no, it's probably too yeah. All right, well, next time. Anyway, guys. No, come on, throw it up, bro. You have hold to on, now. Hold on, let me. Okay, everybody, subscribe. <laughs> Patreon.com. Oh, and also, I am going to plug uh, Giovanni Panicchietti. So go to Giant Art Productions on uh, YouTube. Oh, Become yeah, that's right. Yes. I'm subscribe, to, subscribe to Geo. Subscribe to uh, Huntsman. Uh, it's Twitter.com. On tomorrow, I'm releasing. Oh, shit. Sorry, Lev. Sorry. Fuck. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Say what you're releasing. No, um, on Good tomorrow, man, I'm re <laughs> releasing the second part my, of the two-part video the first one was critiquing zoomer artists from this article in artsy the second one is going to be these uh, statements from these mfa grads visual artists so i'm going oh, to like rip the shit out of them and yesterday statements. i did a, my second art stream where i'm doing another uh, i did another painting for the man's world magazine gallery series that i'm going to hopefully release in september i have to contact rag nationalist but um so yeah that's gonna and probably next week i'll have another book of revelations chapter mm. so i know it does have a problematic word in there that virgin autist uh, thing yeah so it's already love i'm sure they won't pick it up but twitter twitter.com slash man integrated go there or be square uh become become good friends with huntsman and his work brilliant uh, individual here thank you so much for being here and prudentialist why the name you. man integrated by the way well, at one time I wanted to pretend that I had life all kind of figured out oh, and that, uh, you know, like, like my, my, like my archetype and my shadow had all been sort of integrated and that's totally not the case, but, uh, the name stuck and people know it. So here we are. 
Nice. There we go. And also follow Prudentialist at uh, 2B Prudential on Twitter. And of course, follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash levpo, L-E-V-P-O. I am going to be doubling down on the NFTs, on the artwork. I am in a bottleneck right now because there's all these images I have to finish for that big muscles painting. But when that is done, all the smaller ones are going to come out. Anyway, guys, this is the end of the stream. Thank you so much for watching. Mwah! Take God care. God bless.